This is Jocko Podcast number 417 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. I have to think about everything happening around me, outside the car, like when to come in for a pit stop and what kind of stop I'm making, whether it's a short stop or a long stop, changing tires or just adding fuel or adjustments I want made to the car in my next pit. I'm thinking about where the other drivers are on the track and the order we're all driving in, who's a lap down and who I'm racing against, whom will I risk driving next to, especially if they are behind me in the standings. There's a lot happening inside the car too. I'm constantly adjusting my suspension, monitoring all my engine functions, and adjusting my fuel mixture, switching between full power and various conversion levels according to the fuel strategies. When you drive an open cockpit car, there's a constant deluge of flying debris, including rubber from the tires, often referred to as marbles, exhaust fumes, oil on the track, stones or pebbles, and so on. Everything on the track becomes a potential hazard and a problem when it comes to seeing while I drive. Several times during the race, I remove tear-offs, which are layered plastic-like protectors that sit on top of polycarbonate shield on my helmet to protect my eyes. With all this going on and so much more, I have to keep my mind clear so I can focus on what I have to do that day to complete, to compete, let alone win. One mistake can cost me the race or worse. Racing is a rhythm, a cacophony of thought, skill, and teamwork. There was a lot riding on this race. I knew I had what it would take to give the boys a good challenge. Like every other race of my career, I had something to prove. And that right there is an excerpt from the book called Danica, Crossing the Line, which is written by Danica Patrick, a race car driver who's raced everything from go-karts to Formula Fords to Indy cars to NASCAR. And she's the most successful woman in the history of American open wheel car racing. And it's a pleasure to have Danica here with us tonight to discuss her experiences and lessons learned. Danica. Jocko. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I I love that intro. Well, that's a badass intro. (laughs) We have a lot going on in the car. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking about that. And then you think about the danger and that how much are you thinking about danger? How much when you're when you're strapping in to your vehicle? How much are you thinking about getting killed? Um, a little, mm-hmm. a little, a l- or at least hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I always prayed before I went out for safety, and that the angels would like surround my car and take care of me. Um, but then once I'm out there, nothing. Yeah, yeah. I had I've had a bunch of people on the podcast, a bunch of combat veterans. And I had one guy on that was, his name was Dean Ladd. He was in the Marine Corps in World War II. And he did multiple island campaigns over in the Pacific where the Marine Corps was taking massive casualties. And he was on, I think it was his third island he was going into. It was the island of Tarawa. And we were talking about as he was getting ready to go in. And they're on the little landing craft. And he's talking about, I'm reading from a book that he had written. And I'm reading it and I look up at him. I'm like, I said, how are you, are you thinking about getting wounded or killed while this is happening? And he goes, no, that's going to happen to the other guy. <laughs> and <laughs> that's it's such a cooler answer. <laughs> it, it's such a common thing for military, like young military people that you think 
that people can get wounded and killed, but you don't think it can be you. Mm-hmm. And then I think some guys get older and they start realizing that that's just not true and that yeah. they can get it too. So I don't know, I imagine when you're younger, you're probably, maybe you're a little bit more uh, cavalier or maybe you think about it less, but certainly you you saw enough people get yeah. hurt or killed over your career 100%. where you had to start thinking about like, hey, this could be me next time. Uh, when I started my 2006 season, um, <clears throat> my teammate died in the morning warm-up that morning, yeah. and then we didn't race that yeah, day race as a team. The mm-hmm. rest of the the rest of the series raced, but um, as a team, we didn't. And then my very last race in Las Vegas, uh, when I was full time in IndyCar before I went to NASCAR, uh, Dan Weldon was killed on lap eleven, and I was almost part of it. I remember feeling like I really, obviously, wanted to win my last race. And I was fast. I think I might have been fastest in practice. And I thought, I know I'm going to have to do some really dumb things if I'm going to win because there's just a lot of dumb stuff going on out there right now. There were a lot of drivers that just weren't really super respectful of each other and weren't as familiar with oval racing because it was an oval and, and just, just didn't really follow the, follow the rules, the unspoken mm-hmm. rules. And <clears throat> I talked to my dad and he was like, look, you don't have anything to prove. You go out there and you drive like yourself. You don't have anything to prove. And I'm glad he said that because I went out there and I was, we were starting lap 11 and this car came in front of me and just like cut me off. And my mindset before my dad talked to me was like, anything, you just gotta stick it in there. You just gotta be aggressive and you just gotta crash people, whatever. So I lifted. And it's my instinct anyway, so I'm not 100% sure I could have overcome the instinct, but um, but I went into the race with a little bit of a different mindset than I previously had, you know, the day before. And, um, and that car in front of me was part of this enormous crash in turn one and in turns one and two that killed Dan. And so the car in front of me was caught up in it. He spun off and crashed. Almost everyone behind me did too. It was like we did one more lap around because they just couldn't red flag the, the race quick enough. And it was like a movie scene. There was just chunks of bodywork on fire. There was just cars everywhere. It truly looked like a Hollywood movie scene from a race. Yeah, I want to say... Uh, this is off the top of my head, but I watched that crash. Mm. I want to say 15 cars were involved in the crash and 19 weren't. You ordered the 19 that weren't, but uh, like that's almost half the field. That sounds about right. That's most of the field. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it was a very, it was a, it was obviously a very, um, very, very sad day, traumatic day. Dan died, um, died on impact really and blunt head trauma and um you know other drivers saw it i mean some some drove by it some got out of their cars and literally saw him um and um then we waited around for the decision and we did one sort of parade lap together and uh in memory and we didn't race at all that day that was it so mortality is something that i mean What's the benefit of that is a real question, you know? I mean, you know, when you're young, you're fearless, you're not thinking about dying. I wonder about why it starts creeping in. I really didn't think about how dangerous the sport was until I was done, because it wasn't productive before that. It wasn't like I was unaware, but I remember I retired in 2018. In 2019, I was on pit road and I was uh, commentating for the race, so I was sitting next to Mike Tirico, 
and it passes off to the booth, which is where the play-by-play happens. And I'm sitting down there, and I'm finally having the first opportunity to, like, grab something, a snack or something, something to drink. And I'm, like, snacking on these apple chips is, like, the front, like, the start of the race is coming. The cars are coming at us at 200 miles an hour for the green flag. And I, at that point, went, oh, my God. These guys are crazy. I don't. I can't believe I did this. <laughs> and now I know why my friends that came to my first Indy 500 were like, you know, I mean, at that point I'm only 23, and they thought, I, we can't believe you're in that car out there doing that. Like we don't. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And it just doesn't. It's so crazy what what we're capable of as humans, and almost like in a non-thought way. I don't know if the things that you did were like that, but there's so much that just happens. It's yep. like coming <clears throat> through you. Because if I had to think about it, even if I had to think about something simple like a pit stop, it's so complicated, all the little things that you have to do and the moments and the turn and the clutch and the brake and all the, just like sequencing that was so overwhelming. But when you did it, you did it. Yeah. And I would have a similar thing going up to like if we're doing a target assault, like a direct action mission. And as we're rolling up to the target, so you're maybe five minutes away, so you know it's about to happen. And that's when I would be... That's when I would be thinking through, and that's when I would be worried. And what I'd be worried about is I'd be worried about one of my guys getting hurt or killed. That's what I'd be worried about. And you'd be thinking, oh, did we come up with the right plan? Are we doing this the right spot? What's the enemy gonna do? Are we prepared? And then, But then as soon as we got there, and I would say execute, execute, execute on the radio, and the thing starts, you're not thinking about anything but getting the job done and just reacting off what's in front of you right. and making decisions, but you're not overly thinking the decisions. You're just kind of making them almost almost instinctually right. based on the things that you've known and the things that you've learned and the training that you've done. So yeah, there's definitely some similarities there. I, I, I've heard this expression for the first time the other day, thinking about walking upstairs. Like if you think about walking upstairs, it's hard. Oh my God, this is so true. <laughs> yeah. It's totally happened to me. I actually think about it with down mm-hmm. and I have this weird thought. I'm like, why is this creeping in that I like, need to be careful for my step and think about my walking downstairs. And I thought, is this some like subconscious awareness of like maybe in the future I won't be able to walk upstairs well or something. But I thought, why am I thinking about this? And when you don't think about it, so much it just happens. Yeah, so much easier. And people get caught up. People get caught up. And I'm sure you could get caught up in driving where if you're thinking about what you're doing, it's going to cause a problem. Whereas if you just do what you, without really thinking about it, it's going to be easier. Why is that? I guess because that computer system in our head already sort of has a protocol to follow, and when we start interrupting it with new thoughts, it just throws it off. Yeah, and maybe it takes from assessing what else is going on, so the autopilot of mm. the of the muscle memory and the programming of something simple like walking down steps, or even just you know what you do when you jump out of the car and you go into you're going into combat. Like you you know all those things, you've practiced those things mm. a bunch, and so what you don't have then, if you're thinking about it, is your extrasensory to deal with the new. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's a, that's the only thing that matters. Yeah, you exactly. know how to do everything else. Exactly. You know the patterns, and there's one little deviation from the pattern, that's what you could gotta contend with. Not all the other stuff you already know how to do. Yeah. Mm, all right. All right. Well, good little we already deviated here a little <laughs> bit. All right, let's start at the beginning. Let's let's start at the beginning. So you're born where? Wisconsin? Technically, yes. But then you grew up in I grew where? up in Illinois. So I was born in um, Beloit, Wisconsin, but we lived in South Beloit, Illinois. So 
It was just the closest hospital. Mm-hmm. But Check. yeah, grew up right on the border in the middle of cornfields. And your what did your mom do for what was she? She so my mom and dad met on a blind date at a snowmobile race when they were in their mm-hmm. early 20s, very early 20s. And um, my, my mom was actually at the racetrack because she was helping out a friend that was a girl that was racing. And she was uh, in charge of putting the studs in, this, in the belt of the snowmobile. She was named Captain Traction. <laughs> so my dad had a date, a blind date with Captain Traction. And they hit it off and, and I came along. And, um, and so... Uh, yeah, I mean, racing is just totally in our family, and my dad, my dad was racing at the time, snowmobiles. He raced snowmobiles, midgets, motocross, so um, he he loved it, knew what, how to do it. What do you do, do for a living? Um, he was uh, he ended up being a glazer, so he would install windows in buildings, um, and uh, you know, like two story buildings at the most. And uh, but so he's like commercial. a gear gearhead his whole life. But totally racing, yeah. He knows how to build anything. He built a sled from scratch, like. He um, he can do it. He's he could rebuild the clutches. That's actually what he does now. He has a carbon fiber business and he balances clutches and builds carbon fiber parts for cars and clutch covers that are carbon fiber. And so he's super he's handy. And so my mom, you asked what she did. She was um, so they met really young. So she really didn't do much. But she went to school for accounting. So she was an accountant. And then that was that ended. And she she lived in northern Minnesota then. And so my dad grabbed her and took her <laughs> took her downtown to to wisconsin uh-huh. <laughs> um so uh so yeah they 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 got married in 1980 so they were in their early 20s and so your dad's a gearhead building stuff and he built you a go-kart is that right is that he the way put it, it went together. down he put okay. it together we bought the go-karts and then he built these like standard like sears go-karts type things no, out of the gate or they a little bit no, more hyped no, up no, they're hyped oh your yeah, dad was yeah. A bit so, hyped oh up yeah and actually the very first time i drove a go-kart i crashed well, what went down well, dad, dad screwed up. <laughs> he, um, so he got them built. My sister started at the same time because actually it was my sister who wanted to race, not me. I've realized. She's older than you or younger than you? Two years younger. Okay. So she was eight and I was 10. And what I've realized as I've grown up is that I, I really, it's not always my idea, but I'm up for it. Mm-hmm. Like I'm up for the challenge. Your I'm up game. for the, I love to know. I love to like, I really, well, I'm sure we'll get into it, but I really love to push my comfort zone. Um, but it's not always my idea. So anyway, um, so Brooke wanted to race and the go-karts are ready. So we went out in this back parking lot and uh, my dad put like big you know, spray cans, WD-40, brake cleaner, like made a big circle with all the cans mm-hmm. and was like, all right, girls, go around. And so we're going around the circle and I went to hit the brake and it went, it fell to the floor. Like there was nothing there. <laughs> and so there's a cotter pin that came out of Ooh. the lever. And so it just, they had no, had no attachment. And so I'm 10 and I have no idea what I'm doing. So I just go straight and I'm like, oh no, ah, I'm in a crash, I'm gonna die. And anyway, so I'm headed towards this, this construction truck. You know, construction trailers, sorry, trailer. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're kind of higher, they're more elevated. Well, it was about yay height, mm-hmm. which is neck height. And I was headed right for that. And at the last second, I veered over and hit a concrete wall head on. And like my arms fly back and my arm lands on the exhaust and burns my cool puffy jacket. And like I bruise my legs all up the inside cause I, cause there's uprights that attach to the steering column and that's where the fuel tank is, is in between your legs right there. So like I flew forward after I came back and like 
bruised my legs. And so my dad came over and, um, and uh, guess what he did? Put, fix the brakes and put you back in it? He bought a new go-kart. Okay. Literally, because he, he was like, it's twisted. So you're not going to be fast in a twisted go-kart. Oh, it's just crashed. It. You literally can't see that it's twisted, but he's so experienced. He just knows that you can't crash something and expect it to be the same again. Mm-hmm. And when it comes true from the manufacturer, that's how you want it. You don't want a crashed go-kart. Um, so, uh, so I got a new one and guess who got my twisted go-kart? My mom, my mom started <laughs> racing. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, that was, that was the beginning. And, and you a were bit into of a it, even though beginning. you, even though you crashed and nearly killed yourself out of the gate, you were into it. I, I don't know if I was into it as much as I was up for it. So I, we would go to the track and practice. I, I didn't know this until much later in my life, but Wednesdays were apparently open practice day. So we'd go and I was asking to go to these open practice days. I loved, I love the process. Another thing that I've realized that I love is I love the process. And, and so I, I loved sort of setting a goal and achieving it. I loved hearing my lap time was faster. Mm. And so when we'd practice, this would happen. And so, um, so I got better and better. I mean, I couldn't even keep up. My sister and I couldn't even keep up on the parade laps. Like when everybody's going slow formation laps, couldn't even keep up on those laps. Um, but ha- halfway through the season, um, I started winning, and I, I set the track. Winning. I set the track record. Started winning and getting the track record. Yeah. So you had a yeah. nat- You had some kind of natural ability for this. Yeah, I guess. Because yeah. there, there, there has to be there has to be some kind of natural ability, right? He d- he said he he did see it. He did see it. Yeah. He well, he was like, and then after that, he after the first year, he he just kept pushing me. What about Since your he sister? Knew I could do it, did, we just she, kept did, going. Was she further. not into it? So my sister, she was okay. I mean, we weren't much different, obviously, but she, I probably progressed a little bit more, but she got banged around a lot. I mean, she was probably forty five pounds when we started, so you have to weigh up the go kart to a minimum weight. Oh. And her seat was absolutely bulletproof. That thing had so many sheets of metal on it to like get the car the right cart the right weight. And um, she would fly down the straightaways, this little lightweight thing, but then she'd slow down too much in the corners and people were literally driving over her. And so she just didn't like it mm-hmm. and she quit. What, what is the natural skill set? Is it like spatial recognition? Is it like hand-eye coordination? What do you think it is that makes someone a really good driver? I love that I'm talking about this with you because I think that you'll be able to help me with this. So I've been talking about this a bit lately. <clears throat> And quite a bit. And just say it simple. I think that not a lot of people have like a killer instinct in them. And in particular, I don't think women do. So I talk about this from a, my standpoint as a female mostly. But, but I really believe like you have, to, you have to have this killer instinct that when people push you around, you want to push back. So like I could be walking down the street. And I could, it could be like dark in the middle of the night and in a bad part of town. And I'm literally walking down the street looking at people going, can we swear on this? Yeah, you can swear on this. <laughs> looking down the street like, I dare you to fuck with me. <laughs> dare you. Like, I think that kind of thing. And so I really believe you need to have that level of aggression of pushing back. Uh, you also need to have incredible focus. Your ability to focus has to be super high. Um, uh, you have to be able to stay calm. Uh, because when you get upset and you start getting angry or yelling or getting mad or frustrated, it takes you out of the game. So sort of your your 
your mental capacity to handle a lot of things and do it with a level of calm, I honestly feel like this has to be similar to what you dealt with. Yeah, certainly all those things are very important because you've got to be aggressive. In fact, I talk about being default aggressive. That's got to be your default mode. Your default mode has got to be like, I'm going to make something happen. I'm going to go attack this problem. I'm going to go solve this problem. If your default mode is like, hold on, I'm going to wait and see what happens, you're going to be too late. Now, there are times when your default aggressive decision is to not do anything like, oh, I see what's happening, but I'm going to take a step back and wait for a second. That's okay. But you have to be proactive in your mindset. And then you absolutely have to be able to remain calm. If you're getting emotional, it's going to be a problem. So those things are really important. And then being able to, and I guess this is part of being calm, but being able to take a step back and see what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I know you played basketball too, right? Like, so you're a point guard in yeah, basketball? Yeah. So you're a point guard in basketball and being able to see the floor, right? Being able to see the open players, being able to see more than just like the basket, your defender and the ball, you're not gonna be a terrible point guard. You have to be able to see everyone on the court and be able to see where the open people are. So I think those kind of things are very similar that would make you good as a driver, which I don't know what makes you good as a driver. Mm-hmm. I've done a little bit of driving. We went to a school where we'd learn how to, Yeah. we learned how to, actually I went to a cool school where we learned how to hotwire cars <laughs> and steal them and then race them. And Sorry, then, this is a school? Yeah, is yeah. This, is a, a, this isn't a gang? No, it wasn't a gang. <laughs> it was a school and we learned how to hotwire cars and then we learned how to, you know, go fast in the cars and we learned how to like do pit moves and all that. Do you know what pit wow. are? You, you call it pit moves, right? That's a common term. Pit a pit, stops? No, it's not a pit stop. So a pit move, I forget what it actually stands for, but it's when you when you hit another car in a way that causes a desired reaction. Oh, to spin them out or something yeah, like that? Out. Yeah, like hit their left rear when they're turning or something. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, okay. So we learned how to do that and then we do it a bunch. And so, but it was a cool school. Yeah. Uh, you can't, it's really hard to ski, steal modern cars unless you have special equipment for those cars but like in the early 80s late 70s and be, before that you could steal anything coat hanger yeah. baby like you just walk up <laughs> just it was so easy to steal them and we'd, we'd get put on a timer and they'd have a parking lot full of cars and you'd have to like run out select which car you wanted to steal steal it and then drive at a certain time and and, and what would stealing uh, what's the uh, skill set for Oh, you're in a foreign country oh. and you are on a foot patrol or okay. you're you're doing something very clandestine where you're wearing civilian clothes or you're in a semi-permissive environment. So there's there's maybe not an open war going on, but all of a sudden you get yourself into a jam and you need to get out of there. Cool. We're going to jack a car. Let's go. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I learned a little bit about driving, you know, just from doing that. Sure. You know, we we would we went through, you know, some some drive race drive race car driver taught us like some basics about driving. But I mean, I'm talking like completely rudimentary, so oh, yeah. I don't want to get too crazy. It's here. already infinitely more than most now. Which is it weird, must, right? Do you feel like you're good on the road? Did you feel like all those skills helped you to drive on the road better? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, they definitely did. Yeah, they did. And I grew up in New England where it snows. Oh, yeah. And I grew up in New England where we have dirt roads and we have snow covered roads. And so we'd like rally race rains. cars all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. we would do J turns and all that stuff. So I was lucky to be able to do that before I came in to the military, so I had a little bit of driving skills. Well, I have an idea for a company that I want to start. Okay, uh, I'm I wanna, in. I want to I wanna start a driving school, but not a racing school, like a driving on the road school. That'd be good. Because I drive so easily on the road because I can drive on the racetrack. So 
I got to I have to imagine that the curriculum for driving on the road has not changed in like mm-hmm. 70 years, I'm sure. Yeah. So it needs to be new and you need to be able to do more because so many people suck. It, when you think about what driving is on a regular road and the dangers that it entails, it's a miracle that there's not the people. Well, I think we do have like 40,000 people killed a year. I agree with from you. From driving. I think to myself, I'm like one decision away from. Yeah. Terrible. You're going, and and some of these people are 15, 16 years old, and yeah. They have no, they just don't have a big enough scope. They've never, what I always tell people when they drive on the road is I'm like, just stay in your comfort zone. That's it. Mm -hmm. If you get outside of your comfort zone, you start freaking out, right? (laughs) You start panicking, and you make poor decisions, which is why if you do something like what you did, where you go and you learn how to spin and steal and drive fast and crash people. Like you all of a sudden get a beyond normal scope yeah. of awareness of what's possible and now driving inside of that. It's like lifting weights. Like if you lift five pound weights all the time, like you're never gonna grab the 50. But if you grab 50, the five is nothing. <laughs> so we need to take you to the 50 mm-hmm. or the 100 or the 100 or the 500, whatever, um, <laughs> weight so that you can drive on the car, drive on the regular road, really well so driving school Danica's driving school what do you drive right now for a vehicle um I just got a really great car and I never really have cared that much about cars um but I got a Lamborghini Urus and I got apparently I people see it and they're like the Lamborghini SUV it is what color is it it's all black it's all black black wheels black 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 interior red seat belts and red brakes red's my favorite color so I did you test drive it was there something that that made you buy that well I really was sick of my Range Rover, so I needed a new car. I had it for a long time. I had that car for like six years, so I was ready for a new car anyway. And um, <clears throat> I thought, what should I get? And every time I get a new car, I'm like, God, where do I go from here? You know. Actually, my first car was a BM. My first car that I bought was a BMW 645. And that was because I got so many cars for free growing up, like racing. So I drove for Bobby Rahal and he had dealerships. So I would get a car from him. And then I, before that, I lived in England and I would get a car from, you know, someone over there. And I, I just kind of got whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I, uh, but when I finally could buy one, I bought a 645 BMW. I think I bought it like a convertible even. Again, red, red interior, black car. And then I didn't have a car for a long, long time. So the next one I bought was the Range Rover. And I was like, Oh no, sorry, I skipped it. So I bought the BMW and then I was like, where do I go from here? Mm. And so I bought a Lamborghini, but I bought a used one. I bought a Lamborghini Gallardo mm-hmm. and uh, it was t- it took a big, it took a lot to go for, up from a BMW. Like I <laughs> tested a, a few step. other, well, it, it, like where do you go? There's, there's no in between. How did you like the Lamborghini? I, I, the 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 Gallardo was fun. It was just when the you're car. driving that. How are you not just freaking getting speeding tickets every thirty minutes? I did, minutes? and I did, and and, and I did, and um, especially because you're used to going two hundred miles an hour. Yeah, and so I always thought to myself, seventy-five is like a joke. How can I get out of these tickets? I thought I thought to myself, maybe I should have my FIA racing license and give that to them with my driving license. Maybe that's like the subtle way of saying mm. hello. And then I could make, then I would not say this, but I've thought to myself, then I asked the cop, do you have one of these? Mm. 
that would have gotten you in more trouble. Yeah, no. You have to deal. be super nice. But yeah. um, but anyway, so I, I had a range and I was like, oh, where do I go from here? And I'm like, a Lamborghini, of course. That's always stop two for Danica. So, uh, and I got the Perfumante, which apparently is like a more rare one too. So it's the sportier version. So I drive that sucker around in sport mode everywhere. And it's not because regular mode isn't fast enough. It's because I hate the alarms. You know, when you drive a nice car and they have lane departure oh. and they have you know, closing rates and like beep, 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 beep. And then it slows your car down automatically with the brakes. And oh, that stuff drives me nuts because I'm so outside the bounds of normal people of what they do on the road. And so I I was like, I had my, I was like, I brought it back to the dealership. I'm like, turn these freaking alarms off. I didn't get a nice car so that I could not turn these things off. And they're like, yeah, it's like hardwired in there, but you could turn it to a different mode. And I was like, fine. So I'm like in this, you know, basically, rocket where it has like these levers and I'm like I just pull the sport lever and boom then I have to turn it off when I get in my neighborhood though because it holds RPM for a long time before it shifts so I'll be driving around in like first or second gear in my neighborhood like and I'm like I sound like a jerk so then I pull it back into regular mode the other lever and um, and be PC for my neighborhood very nice of you all right well you're growing up, you're in these go-karts, and you end up the World Karting Association Grand National Champion 1994, 1996, 1997, is that right? So you're the number one. Probably in multiple classes, too. In multiple classes, meaning like different engine sizes? Yeah, exactly, like Yamahas and 820s and different, there's like, I'm not gonna make any sense to anyone else. So so it's very clear that you have not just hard work, but you have a gift. You you have to have some kind of gift to win that kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, I had, I. Again, I had the focus, I had the discipline, and I had a tough dad. Um, so like I had a talented father to wrench on my mm-hmm. go-kart to know what to do with it. Most, I mean, most of the time, people aren't gonna know how to like set the clutch, mm-hmm. set, the, set, the, set the carburetor so it's not too lean or too rich. Like make the, make the gear, you know, choose the right gear, change the axle. Like, I mean, these are all things that most people just don't know. But my dad was just so smart, and so so he was really technically inclined. But then also he really pushed me. And a lot of people said that you know they were really afraid with my talent that it would be what holds me back from succeeding because my dad was so. Oh, like you might just quit, or like he might make me unattractive to companies and teams because he's just too much to deal with. Did you learn how to deal with him yourself? Like I clearly you must have. Would your dad yell at you like, what the hell were you doing on that last lap? A hundred percent. He would, yeah, a hundred percent. From the re- time that I was 10 and it wasn't until, I wasn't until 2020, I remember I was, I went back to Indiana, I was sort of dealing with some emotional stuff and I was like trying to excavate my life and like, why am I like I am and what's going on? And, and so I asked my mom about um, racing. Like I don't remember a lot before I was 10 and that was when I started and so I don't understand why, but I think it's because I blocked a bit out. Um, But I asked about getting yelled at at the track, and I said, you know, how often would that happen? And she was like, every weekend. And I don't even remember every weekend. I just remember sometimes, you know, I remember some fights or some times that we would, you know, I can remember some scenes, like some flashes, like a picture. I can remember being somewhere. But she was like, every weekend. I was like, every weekend? She's like, Every weekend, she's like, you know, of all things, like that's what I regret most that I didn't, I didn't stop that. Mm-hmm. So my dad just—he was just really—he was really tough, and um, 
you know, the the thing that I'd say is he did always say I, I didn't have to do it, but if I did do it, he was going to help me do it the right way. So I forever I've always described him as someone that's not really, he didn't really push me, but he would pull me along, like drag me along sometimes. Yeah, drag me through the mud. And you sure. must have realized that your dad cared about you and like some of that anger and frustration from him would be, you must have made that translation in your head as a little girl thinking, my dad's not yelling at me because he's mad at me as a person. He's mad because he wants me to do better. Do you think you were able to pull that off? That's a huge reach for a little kid. Yeah, I, 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 it gave me the, it gave me the programming that nothing, like I was not enough because nothing was ever enough. So I took that into my adulthood, mm. and I took that into my relationships. Is what I took that into. I, I think it probably propelled me in work, but in intimate relationships, it was not a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, because I just always would overcompensate, and I would be codependent, and I'd be like, "How do I fix this?" And I'd, I'll just do better because I could always just do better. Mm-hmm. I knew how. I had such huge capacity to do better and dig deeper. And so that was where it didn't do well. But I truly believe that there's like a season for all this stuff. And I'm not mad that I was like that. It made me who I was. It helped me accomplish great things. But there, that season came to an end. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of dominating in this world, uh, cart world. And then the next thing that happens is you have the opportunity to race or to, yeah, to race in England. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And England's, is it safe to call England the Mecca of driving? I think so. I think you could say it's it's definitely like the Mecca of the on the planet of racing would be in England. It's the probably the most popular and dense, densely populated with tracks and um, series and different things. Um, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. And how does this come about? Do they recruit you, or do you kind of volunteer to them? Mm. It's a little bit more of a recruit. Mm. So when I was fourteen. Um, I, I, I was winning everything, and this family, I, this family had noticed me because I went to the suite and turned to at the Indianapolis 500, and I was just watching at 14 years old, and I had talked to this guy that was a British guy, and I was just asking, I guess, all the right questions, and then I remember him telling me something like, "Oh, you could learn more in one year in England than five years in America," and I'm 14, I'm like, "Wow, that sounds really good, really smart idea. Let's do that." Uh, anyway, two years go by, and you know I'm very successful. And so he worked for this family, and this family got in touch with my dad and and said, you know, we'd like to meet with you guys. And so we almost didn't go. It's a four hour drive each way from where we lived, and it was like raining all day, and where it was, was just like meeting? a rough day. It was in Indianapolis, okay. And we lived in Northern Illinois, uh, and so it was a long drive, and we were going to do it all in a day. And it was like, oh, should we go? And and what I end up realizing is that, and this is true for me, basically, basically this is true. I, to the best of my ability, of course, is that I just usually do the right thing in the end, even if it doesn't rely on my dad. Like, I do the right thing. And uh, so we went, and we had this meeting, and they wanted to take me to England. They're like, we've watched you. You're amazing. We want to help you with your career. And so I went over there uh, at the end of that year, when I, at, the end of being, at the end of the year when I was 16, and I raced in this winter series. For are they are they signing you to some kind of a contract? Yeah, at this yeah, point? yeah, kind of. I'm trying to remember. There was some level of a contract. I don't know if it had started then. I think it might have. It at least started after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
that was my junior year of high school, and uh, I missed half of the first semester of so junior year. So you're 16 year. years old. I'm 16 years old. I'm a junior. I was this first month of school. Then I left for two months to do this winter series, and then I came back for the last month of school until Christmas, and uh, I ended up going back the next year for the full series. So I. How'd you do in the winter series when you got over there? I I think I was okay. I think I was okay. And what were you racing? It was called Formula Vauxhall. So it was a form it was a formula car like an Indy car or an mm -hmm. F1 but no wings. So and of course far less sophisticated mm -hmm. um, and much less horsepower. But it basically just trying to give you a visual. It's an open wheel car with no wings. And so the wings create downforce and so it just makes the car slower so you can't go quite as fast around the corners. So it's, you know, a little mm -hmm. bit of a safer speed probably. Um, for a low level. So you're learning how to drive an open wheel car, but without the full downforce yet. So um, so the winter series was not necessarily so much just a test. It was more practice to get ready for the next season. So I did the winter series and then I, I, I never went after, after Christmas break, I didn't go back to school again. And I moved over to England. And was that I, your first time? Because go-karts, go-karts aren't open wheel, right? They, they are actually. Oh, okay. Yep, I know. I, oh, it took me like right. a really long that's time right. in my career to learn this, so don't feel bad. Oh, that no, you no, don't no, no. I, I get it, but I was trying to imagine like I, what I was thinking, honestly, embarrassingly enough, I was thinking about like the go-karts at a freaking, at a carnival or whatever, <laughs> when they have like the entire bumper system Body around work. the whole oh, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. No, these but then I was remember those little go-karts. Yep, they, they have like a front wheel. bumper and a back right. bumper, but the tires are still, like you can still... You can still climb them a little bit here and there. So, and the the open is open wheel more dangerous because yeah. if they connect, it's going to be like an immediate problem. Whereas yeah. you have a little bit of a buffer if you have closed wheel. For two reasons, you can climb wheels, so it can have more spectacular things happen. Um, and then, of course, you're exposed. You're open cockpit, so your your head is exposed to the elements. I've been hitting that. I was hitting the head with a tire in IndyCar one time. It ricocheted off my helmet, and all I got was a rubber mark on it. I'm like, <laughs> I have some serious angels. And that you have like, I was watching videos of you, and you have like a full apparatus around your head. Yeah, it's I mean, a head surround. Yeah, yeah, yep. So um, they've made it safer over the years because of things hitting drivers. Um, a driver in IndyCar was killed a few years back from debris hitting him. So. Um, they created this windshield that goes on the front. Um, in Formula One, one of the drivers was hit with a spring. So um, then they created this sort of halo, they call it, where it's not, it's uh, there's a, there's an upright in the very center of the car. So it literally is dead center in the car. And then it comes around the head, um, right level with sort of the top of the helmet. Um, but it's open underneath. So you're kind of, that's where you're looking. Um, so that's called a halo. So they've developed a bunch of things over the years to help protect drivers' heads from the elements. Why? Do, don't they just put a little like enclosed cockpit? Why don't they close off the wheels? What's the advantage of it? Is it just because hey, this is just cooler? Um, I mean, why don't they close off the wheels? I guess it's uh, it would change the aerodynamics of the car. It would turn it into a full body, which takes away from the way that the car uh, operates aerodynamically mm -hmm. with just the wings and the underbody. Um, and probably it just wouldn't it just wouldn't be true to itself anymore. Mm -hmm. It's probably a valid question to be yeah. honest. Why there isn't more done to just even like putting yourself inside of the cockpit. Well, one of the things is if you were inside the cockpit, and let's say um, one of the things that we had to do to start the season uh, every year in IndyCar was we had we got timed how quickly we could get out of the car. If there was an emergency, we had to be able to do it in under five seconds. 
And so now imagine that you have uh, an actual something over oh, you yeah. latched and closed. Like now you're actually Traps. trapped. Yeah. So okay. safety, because in an open, in a stock car, in a car where it has like a door, mm-hmm. <laughs> a window, <laughs> um, uh, you climb out the window. Yeah. So essentially that's your top is the side. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. So now you get over there. You you do the for the winter season and how do you how do you think you did in the winter season? I think I did okay. I don't remember exactly how I did, um, but I was okay. But they saw potential. Yeah, and and it was also like part of getting ready for the next year. It was like a good way to get uh, get mm-hmm. some time on track and. And at this point, you, at some point, you get sponsored by Ford. Yeah, yeah, Ford does sponsor me. Um, it's uh, they it came through the agents. It mm-hmm. came through the people that. Um, that uh, that took me over there. And you end up, when you go back to England, and all this is from your book, you end up being there for three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like 16, 17, 18? Yeah, 19. It was kind of like at last half of 16 to the first half of 19. And again, coming from your book, you were, look, you're doing all this mature stuff, like living over there and being a racer and all this stuff, but you were still like a 16, 17-year-old girl that's just like. Yeah, I mean, what do you do when you're 16 years old? Yeah. And you have no parents, and you have n- nobody to really like double check everything, and you're hanging out with a bunch of teenage boys because that's all there was. Like, I definitely I like partied and had fun, and I did what I I did a lot of what I would have done at home on some level, mm. right? But I was on my own, and maybe I did more of it. Well, in England, not more than everyone else, but hey, it doesn't matter. Yeah, in England, drinking is way more oh uh, socially God. acceptable. It's the it's like in, in America, yeah. pastime is baseball. Yeah. In England, pastime <laughs> is drinking. Literally, a pint yeah. at the pub is like their Just pastime. Normal. Just yeah. normal, everyday type yeah. scenario. Yeah, and, and you didn't, I mean, shoot, you could get in anywhere. Like you didn't, age was not like a yeah. hard, diff, hard thing. Drinking age was lower. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I think it's the drinking 17? age is 16 or 17, 17 over there. Maybe, yeah. My wife's a Brit. Oh, really? So like for her, she just grew up just drinking. You know, when she was 13 years old, they would drink at the dinner table with their parents. And it was one of those things where when she moved to America and she saw like the way kids acted here, it was more like crazy binge drinking at a young age. Yeah. In England, they also have crazy binge of drinking course, too. But, but I guess her thought was the normal exposure. Like this is not that big of a deal. Right. But you know how kids sometimes like their first year in college or whatever, oh, yeah. they're going full ham on the freaking totally. booze. Echo Charles, you seem to be nodding enthusiastically <laughs> with that. Confirmed. Did you see the, Did you Confirmed. see some of that over there in Hawaii? <laughs> yeah, we, we saw some of that, yes. Yeah, yes. some people getting crazy. Getting crazy. So that happened to you, Danica, being 16 years old, all of a sudden there's no, pr- pretty much no rules. Pretty much no rules. Pretty yeah. much no rules. No drinking, uh, no no drinking limit age. Yeah. And you're just rolling in there. And no, like, you know, my parents were super strict about my curfew when I was growing up. And then you have, so who are you living with over there? I lived with like um, two different girl, like two women. Um, one of them worked for a Formula One team. And then the other girl just like had a regular job. She was just like a regular person, but they were roommates. And then I come along. And so the first thing I do when I get to England is I'm like staying, actually, I'm literally sleeping on a couch and my bags underneath the stairs going upstairs like I just was all like the couch was too and I I'd pull out the couch to do the pull out bed and that's where I'd sleep and then eventually the lady who worked for the Formula One team would travel to London every weekend so she was like I'll do the couch during the week you can have those bedroom and when I say bedroom it's more like a closet (laughs) 
It is a shoebox. Mm-hmm. It is like enough for a single bed and then like a little hanger at the end of the, it's so tiny. Um, but then I moved into the bedroom after, um, I don't know, a month or two or something. And are you going to school? Are you being, no. no, no books? No, I'm done now. I'm getting my GED, my good enough diploma. When, so I'm when done. do you get your GED? I got it when I came home that year after my first year in England. So I actually graduated before all my friends. Okay. Actually, that's tech. That's true. That part's true. But I did fail the first time I took it. You failed the first time you took the GED. I did. Because you hadn't done schoolwork in a year. Well, I'm actually decently smart. I'm not brilliant, but I'm 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 fine, and mm. I have decent recall. And so I would never study. I hated studying, never studied. But I'd always do my homework, so I'd learn enough from the homework, and mm-hmm. I was not a jerk in class. I paid attention. I wasn't disrespectful. Um, so between paying attention in class and doing my homework, I learned enough to know. And and so I'd get, I was like a, I was like an AB student. Like I was like a 3.5, yeah. 3.8 student. Like every year it was easy. I didn't study. No factor. Uh, yeah, just, and so, um, so I passed everything except for the constitution test. <laughs> and so I don't like, politics and government are really not my strong suit. And I just like, it just, it just doesn't make sense in my brain. I don't know if you guys have these things like that just in life, they just don't make sense. <laughs> and that's one of those things that does not make sense. Like the, 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 the house and the, yeah. this, well, I don't know. Not, I the thing is, it's not intuitive. That's maybe what it is. So if you didn't actually like say, okay, how is the Congress set up? What are the three, like it doesn't, there's no, yeah. you can't just kind of logically go, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I got it. You'd have to actually learn it so if you didn't study you wouldn't know it so you failed your JD first because of that and I only passed it I only just passed the constitution test in eighth grade to go to high school I had to have a 70 to pass a 69 was failing and I got a 70 Mm. so then fast forward years later I haven't studied at all (laughs) and uh, I take the constitution test and I fail and I'm like oh they give me like a little booklet and I only had to get 30 out of 60 right to pass so anyway I failed it and I had to get this booklet to study and I, I, I have to imagine I only just passed. Um, but everything else was fine and easy. But And so meanwhile, so you're in England, no school. So how many hours a day are you driving? Not. Um, I mean, it's just like the weekends. And I remember thinking what? to myself, so I was during like... during the week, what are you doing? Nothing. Like going to coffee shops and sitting and drinking cappuccinos. And that's when I started getting into health and, health and fitness stuff. Okay. I would grab all the health and fitness books and I'd flip through them and... You know, I just sit there and drink like two cappuccinos and like, I mean, I, I, there was nothing to do. There was really nothing to do. I'd go work out and I don't know. And then you go to the pub at night. Go to the pub, go to the, go to the club, whatever, you know. Where, where were you? What? I was in Milton Keynes. Oh yeah, that's right. Which is like race central. Yeah. It's pretty close. Pretty. Yeah. Yeah. It's a definitely a good location. And then on the weekends, what are you doing? Are you, you drive to the track? Are you learning? Are you, is there someone coaching you? Do you have like a mentor? You're sitting in classes, the guy's like, hey, follow me on this run or I'm gonna, nope, you know? Nope. No, you're just driving, you're racing. You're learning by racing. And so I have teammates and, um, <clears throat> but they weren't really teaching me a lot about the car. It was kind of a lot more like, if you can't drive the setup of whoever's fastest, then you have to figure out how to drive the setup. Like they weren't just gonna change it. And here's the thing. Every driver has a different style. And so every driver needs a different setup. Fast forward later in life in Indy cars, like I loved it when someone saw, when I was really fast and people put my setup on because I knew they couldn't be as fast as me with my setup because it's mine. So you're just getting in the, are these the, are you still in Vauxhall or this is switched to Ford Formula? So this was Formula Formula Vauxhall. That's right, good. Yep, it was Formula Vauxhall and then the next year was Formula Ford. And 
again, you're just basically getting a car that's not rigged for you. It's just a basic, it's just, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. There's not, it's not set up special. I mean, I have my own seat, of course, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have, like, it's not curated handling wise for me, really. I mean, you give feedback, but shoot, I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to change it. I didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. And then how often are you actually racing on the weekends? Every, most weekends. So, so I was under the impression that when you were in England, it was like, uh, you know, it was like this school you were going to. Ooh, where like people, a boot camp Yeah, almost. like a boot camp where they're like, okay, Danica, here's how. Let us talk about tire pressure on cold weather days and like that. None of that. It's just like get in the car and race. Yep. And it's pretty much race every weekend. Pretty much, yeah. And is this a series where people are watching it? Or is it just like a, like a, a minor bit, league? It's a minor league, super minor league. So there's no like uh, recruits and people coming to be like poaching, like, oh, Danica's really good. Let's bring her to the bigs. You know, like mm-hmm. it's not like that. It's at all. lower than that. It's lower than that. It's like, can you do this? And then you go to the next. And then can you do that? And then you keep going. Like you're, you're a few levels away from anyone actually watching to see if you should drive their top level car. How many people, how many of these kids, are they all like younger people? They're all like yeah, I mean, 16, 17, 18, yeah. 19 years old? Yeah, yeah. Are they all just super rich families? Some, yeah, some. How could you do this if you weren't kind of rich? I mean, I know that you weren't sponsors. rich. Oh, okay, so they all get sponsors. Yeah, like when Ford helped or like this family did. Mm-hmm. Or like sometimes young drivers will get, um, uh, somebody will, uh, sponsor them they will support them but they do a contract where if they make it then 20 percent of their mm-hmm. salary over the next 15 years or something goes back to them so did a lot you of have people that kind of contract or no i did not i got, got super lucky? lucky that i didn't have to do that but a lot of drivers did a lot of drivers had to kind of sell their soul a little just to get the chance and so um i don't know i i had this like so i came back from england when i was 19 and um, it happened in a dramatic way. The team was, it was only like four or five races into the season. And um, the team just wasn't giving me what I wanted. Um, basically what happened is the season before I was driving for a, a secondary ser- secondary team within the series. And because the teams, the main team, like the factory team said, we don't want to have five cars on our team. So we'll do you we'll put you in this other team we're going to give you all of our setups the cars it'll be the same thing which Mm -hmm. it never is and then you know after that then you can then next year you'll you can come race on the the factory team so the next year comes i'm racing on the factory team and guess how many cars are on the team five Mm. so i'm like fifth driver on a five car team and uh and so we got about five races into the season and i just i was told by my managers because i was talking about that I was like I don't understand and I don't feel like I'm getting what I need and, and they said just don't go to the track and so I remember not going to the track and thank God my sister was in with me in England visiting and so we just sat home from the track one weekend and I was like this is so weird and I went home and um, and then I tried to find a ride back in the, back in the states um, because uh, so I left England in a dramatic way mm-hmm. so I came back in the middle of a season and I'm at this point 19 years old so now I'm not f- racing full-time at 19 I'm not racing full-time at 20 um, and do it wasn't until know, the end pe- of the year the do next people year know who you are at this point um not really because you kind of I made mean, a name for yourself in go-kart so probably yeah, people probably saw you but then you shipped off to England and I'm and a girl so I like you know people you know I would say in racing had probably like kind of heard of me mm-hmm. or like had known something about it um, and I was also on some TV shows when I was young like um, 
MTV came to my high school and they were filming like some like extreme sports stuff, you know, and so MTV was like did put put me on their show and um, and then there was also another one called Passion to Play Making of a Champion and there was three women featured and it was myself, Tara Lipinski and Anna Kornikova. We were all 14 and um, so they followed me around my high school and all that stuff too and so that was like a, a sad a, like a Sunday special mm-hmm. like and narrated by Robin Roberts who was like the host <laughs> of it and um, and it's so funny too like because I, I haven't seen Robin in a while but I've, I saw her obviously many more times in my life after that because of going on GMA and different things so it's funny to have that one be full circle but I was only 14 and so you know I'd done some things that had got got mm-hmm. some attention yeah but, and I did so well but then you get overseas you're not like a superstar so maybe people are like oh yeah Yeah. we kind of remember her and so you come back to america um and then it was you had some opportunity to do something with bmw it sounds like yeah so that was my only that was all i did from 19 to 20 so again the very beginning of that year when i was 19 i came home at the end of that season um which i didn't race at all at the end of that year uh bmw asked me to come test their car for them and it would be for a sports car ride but you know, you just take what you can get. And so I went and I was faster than their main driver. And like the the main driver had to go put like sticker tires, like new tires on to go lay a lap down just so that he could go faster. Damn. And so um, so they, they hired me. And then that car was made illegal the next year because of the engine was not a stock engine that they would sell and that was part of the requirements with the series so they just didn't race because it would have cost like quarter of a million per car to make that a production car with a different engine so we didn't race but what it did allow me was me and my dad had the opportunity to pound the pavement so we would go to the racetrack each weekend and we would just see who would be willing to give me a test or a ride or you know put me in the car see what i can do I mean, geez, we would literally go to the bathroom for something to do. Like we were, it was just like, you know, it was selfless, Mm -hmm. just arduous, you know, begging almost. And, 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 and people, the best thing people would come back with is like, oh, you know, it's some ridiculous number to just drive their car and test it. It's like, it was insulting. Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean ridiculous number? Like they would say, oh, it's like, you know, if you want to test this car, if you want to race this car, they'd put a price tag on it that was so high. You mean you would have to pay them? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Isn't that backwards for the way it's, you would Well, you wouldn't, you don't really get paid back in those days. Like at that level, you're not a paid driver, Uh. but, um, but you know, it, to throw usually they'll test someone to see if they're they're good, and that might not cost anything or nominal. But like when they were slapping like insulting numbers on it, if I was going to drive it, which meant they just wanted to see if they could just get some money out of me at least. Okay. So it was. In, it and was, you, there's a term that you use in the book, and you're using it a little bit right now. Ride, like ride, trying to get yeah. a ride. Yeah, get expand a seat on in that a, car. a little bit. Yeah, a ride is like you're 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 trying to get a seat on a team. You're trying to be able to have a spot in the series with a team and a car. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that's what a ride is. That's what a ride is, looking yeah. for a ride. Yeah. Uh, Toyota Pro Celebrity Race. <laughs> you go out there and... I did, I won it. And uh, so there was a, yeah, it was a, it was a fun, uh, so the Toyota did this pro celebrity race. I, I don't know if they still do it or not, but did it for a long time. And they'd get some really good celebrities. Like I can trying to remember some, I remember the one that always sticks out is Brian Cranston was in that race. I remember, but anyway, I was in the pro category and I was also out there with another driver, like, and I became friends with him. Um, his name is Tommy Kendall and he was a really, a really great sports car driver. And so there was actually some good competition 
competition when it came to the other the other pros that were in it. It would be like 15 celebrities and like five pros. So the pros would have to start. Um, actually, this is brilliant. I, I think in sports, tell me if you think this is a good idea. There should almost always be like a baseline normal person to show you what is really oh, normal. Yeah. Like like take the Olympics. Imagine someone's going like <laughs> doing downhill skiing. Yeah. <laughs> and you had to have like a regular person Dude, go that, do That's it. a really good idea. To have a delta. Yeah. Like go, this is how good they are. Because right. people look at race car drivers and they think, I could kind of do that. I might be able to do that. Do that. I could drive my car. <laughs> and um, but you have no idea. And so and it looks easy because you don't see the car moving because if it moves too much, trust me, it's gonna crash. So it's always moving a little bit. Anyway, so um so they would start the celebrities like fifteen, I don't remember, thirty seconds ahead, fifteen seconds ahead, a, a good chunk ahead. Yeah. And this and the pros would start back. And so um so I and I won. Uh, I won I won the pro and I can't remember where I finished overall. I don't know if I won the whole thing or not. I might have. I don't even remember. Um it was long it was twenty years ago. Yeah. Um, so uh but that that was like one of those things where PR liked me. And so after I won, uh, the next day, there was a, I had made a bet with this guy, Tommy Kendall, uh, that if he's like, if you beat me, you can walk me down pit lane before the race tomorrow, the IndyCar race, or it was cart then or champ car. You can walk me down pit lane with a, a, a collar and a leash. And you did it. And I did it. <laughs> so like, you know, there's these moments in my career where I wasn't necessarily like, you know, I wasn't uh, super established, but it caught some traction. And then I did some sexy photo shoots too. Those helped. What was this when you did FHM? Mm-hmm. Was that that year? You did yeah. FHM that I, year? I was 19, so yeah, it might have been that year. That was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. I remember I got a lot of flack for that. But wait, you got I, flack for it? Oh man, especially from like feminists and people that think I'm taking women, like I'm I'm lowering. Um, lowering the value or the perception of women by doing stuff like that. Um, but I never did anything outside my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. I really didn't. And I, I mean, I just have a different comfort zone than you, obviously. Yeah. So you started getting a little bit more popular. Yeah. We started getting approaching, moving towards Danica mania. Yeah. A couple, we're just two years we're, away from Danica getting, mania. We're getting closer. Uh, now you, you were talking about going into all these different race, races and just talking to people and this is where you end up kind of having a pretty pivotal moment when you meet with Bobby Rahal, right? right? Yeah, yeah. And how's so, that go down? Again, uh, back to my my uh, less or my what I know about myself now is I do the right thing. So you remember when I went to, took the meeting in Indianapolis and I was like, oh, we don't really want to go, but it's like, all right, we do the right thing. So my dad was like, all right, Milwaukee race weekend. We only lived an hour away. It's like, let's go to the track. And I was like, oh, dad, I'm sick of walking around, begging people and having nothing happen. I'm just, I'm over it. And he was like, let's just go for like 45 minutes. And I was like, all right. So we go. And I had received a phone call from someone like either that week or the week before that said, hey, I could have a full-time sponsor for you, a full sponsor uh, for the Formula Atlantic series, which is the se which was the series below Champ Car, um, was the feeder series. So like the you know minor leagues, triple A's, double A's. How's it go? Um, and and so I said, um, and he said I could have a full-time sponsor if there's a letter of intent that says that you know Bobby will do an Atlantic team with you in it. And I was like, wow, okay. So I went to the track, 
we went to pretty much straight to Ray Hall's hospitality. I saw Bobby and I told him this. And I was like, I've also realized I'm very direct. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, I walk right up to him and I'm like, hey. And I was like, so I talked to this guy and he said, we could have a full-time sponsor if you do a, put me in an Atlantic car. And he looked at me and he went, okay. Done. 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 Go home. Celebrate. It truly happened. Two weeks later was the next race, the next Indy, next Champ Car race, and they were racing at Laguna Seca in California, up north, and uh, <clears throat> and we signed a letter of intent at a press conference um, with everybody there, with the media, that Bobby was going to start an Atlantic team and I was going to drive for him. That's it. And I found out much later on, this is just years ago, that I found out like everyone told him he was crazy. Everyone told him like, you're, I can't believe you're doing this. And I said to him, obviously later in life now, and I was like, I am so, like I'm so glad that you looked smart. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, when somebody's questioning you and you feel convinced that it's a good idea or the right thing to do, and you just like hope to God you look smart in the end, I'm like, I, I just really was glad that I, I was glad that I made him look smart. How hard is it to go from different types of cars to different types of cars? You know, luckily I was able to do it, but it's somewhere uh, for a lot of people, you can get lost in it. Mm. Sometimes it just doesn't translate. Like you watch people in sports go from college football to like NFL and sometimes it just doesn't translate, right? They can be the number one draft pick and then they are a flop. Like sometimes it just doesn't, sometimes it just doesn't translate. Yeah, I, I was uh, shooting and I, I used a certain type of pistol my whole life and because that's what we used in the SEAL teams. They don't use it anymore, but I used a six hour my whole life and whatever platform from a six hour and I was going through a course and I was using a different platform and <clears throat> it definitely took some like getting used to. Like I wasn't close to as good as I would have been with a SIG. Accuracy and and everything. You know, it was more like the mechanics of moving because once you're on the trigger and you're looking at the sight picture, it's pretty, that's pretty much, I know how to do that well. But just the way the the other mechanics of the pistol are just a little bit different. And so you'll be like reaching for something and it's not there. Anyways, I could imagine when you're in these different cars that there's some people that it's gonna be really difficult to go from this one to that one because it's just different. Yeah, could be downforce and how it works. It could mm-hmm. be, um, could be how the brakes work. It could be like how the car, like what, how to how to be able to decipher what the car is doing to feel it accurately mm-hmm. to translate that back to an engineer, so you can make changes to make the car better. Like maybe you just don't feel it really well. Um, yeah, maybe, and also I think a really big layer of this is your mind. I think a lot of people as they progress, they just don't have the, they just aren't strong enough. To make the changes? To stay confident, to not get overwhelmed, to not um, take themselves out of the game, to, uh, like I think they, I just think that, I just think you you have to have like a, a really, really focused mindset and you have to just have a lot of, you have to have enough confidence to, to dig deeper. I guess too, the fact that you raced different types of cars growing up, you weren't always in the same car, so you already got used to making those adaptations in your life. Yeah. Maybe that helps. Maybe I was just good. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not gonna lie to you, I've never actually said that out loud like that before, but I just thought of it, and I was like, maybe I was just good. Well, And you know, my dad has tried to tell me this over the years too, but, because I mean, 
when I look at myself, if I'm looking really objectively and honestly, was I good? Obviously, I was good enough to do what I did. I, I, you don't stick around and you don't race for 27 years because, you know, you're just a girl. Like, trust me, there have been plenty that there would be a lot more girls if it was about just being a girl. Um, was I the best ever? No. But was I good? Yeah. And so, like, why was I able to, 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 tra- to go from one to the next and be able to do it? It's like, I guess I was just good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you had talent. That's what yeah. that's what I was saying when you're winning like even as a little kid you're winning like these these national champions. Yeah. Like you you have to have yeah. some level of natural talent. Yeah. And you know, I've, you know, seen throughout my life there's people that are good at stuff. Yeah. There's like people that are just good at stuff. And maybe they're good at this thing but not good at something else and you're really lucky if you can find something that you're good at like you got Look, you might have also been able to be a great guitarist or a great uh whatever other kind of athlete. But you, thankfully, you found something that you were just right. naturally talented in. That do you you're think? Good at. Do you think that someone, when they're good at something, because I mean, you, you have to, you're going to have to agree with me on this one. You can do so many things well, like you, because you're such a perfect example. You've been good at so many things, and so I'm like, for me, it's a curiosity of like, what is it that makes someone so able to plug and play themselves into so many different things? And like, you can't just say you're just lucky. Yeah, you're able that you have this a skill set or a mentality. There's a skill set and a mentality that makes you a plug and play person. There is, but. People have natural talents. And yeah. I, I, the, the best example I can give, because it's very, very clear, is fighting. So there's people that are good at grappling. They're naturally good at grappling, meaning wrestling, meaning yeah. jiu-jitsu. There's people that are naturally good at that. There's people that are naturally good at striking, meaning punching, kicking, elbowing. There's people that are naturally good at that. There's people that are naturally incredible grapplers that they are not good strikers. And they can't really make that transition. Mm-hmm. And there's people that are naturally good strikers, and right. they don't make that transition. So even though they're maybe even world class in some cases at grappling or world class at striking, and sometimes this is such a good uh, example too, because sometimes people they've trained just almost just as much in. Let's say they started off mm-hmm. as a striker, and then by the time they're 13, they're like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to wrestle," but they never get as good as they are for that natural gift that they have hmm. of striking. Mm-hmm. And they never, or same thing the other direction. So there's people that can be really good at basketball, but they're not quite gonna be as good at baseball, right? right, right. Now look, could we look at Michael Jordan and be like, well, right. you know, Michael, he, he tried to play baseball and obviously he would, but he, he had dedicated his whole life to basketball. So maybe you could take Michael Jordan and say, hey, Michael Jordan, go back in time, now just focus on baseball. Right. Would he have been? probably would have been right. hella good at baseball. Right. But there are other people that they could be really good at one thing, but it doesn't necessarily translate to everything that they do. So mm-hmm. you I bet there's I bet if we got to look at your freaking like blueprint like God's <laughs> blueprint for you. He probably had like seven things. He'd be like, oh, look, she's good. she could be really good with these talents. She could be a really good race car driver, really good. Well, you're small, like really good jockey, really good gymnast. Really, yeah. like there's probably seven things that you could have totally excelled at. And then there's a bunch of things that yeah, yeah. you wouldn't have yeah. excelled at. Yeah. Oh, trust me, there are things that I am so <laughs> yeah. bad at. Uh, yeah. And the <laughs> of skill, course. like I, like I mean, details, um, being sweet and like like demure and like n- and indirect with people. Like there's just so, there's some or like I don't know I I don't even know how to say it correctly. Like 
there's there are things that I am yeah. just not very good at. So I this isn't me trying to say like oh if you're good at one thing you know if you're a talented person, um, but I think that I you can plug and play your talents that make you good at one thing and into other things. Now when we're talking about just racing itself and like how are you able to transition from the levels and continue to achieve at the next level, um, I think you just have to have a lot of raw, raw natural talent. You also have to have incredible timing. You have to be with the right team at the right time so that you can look good. Mm -hmm. So I also think that I had a luck on my side. I had fate on my side. I had, um, I had, you know, I put myself in the arena a lot, yes, but I also had to be with the right person at the right time too and not get stuck in a car that sucked and made mm -hmm. me look like I sucked, right? Because there's only so much a driver can do. Yeah. The other thing that, well, when I was going through your history and reading your books, is like sometimes you would win first place or you'd win pole or you'd have the best like track times or lap times during the warmups. Mm -hmm. So you definitely had yeah. the requisite skill to win. You definitely had it. And then, you know, like you said, you got to get lucky. Maybe you run out of fuel. Maybe you get hit. Like, right. oh, there's a million little things that are going to happen. Right. And there's a different game, right? There's a different game when you're alone on the track and you can go wherever you want than when you're jockeying with a bunch of other people. Yep. And that's a, a little bit of a different game. And I'm sure there's people, like we have people in, in mixed martial arts that in training, they're annihilators. Mm. And they get in the, the, the night of the event and they, they don't do as well as everyone thinks they're going to do. Mm. Literally, we would have guys that would... You know, guy A wins in training every single time. Guy B loses to that guy, to that same guy in training every single time. They go into and fight, you know, other people. And the person that usually wins in training loses and the person that usually loses in training wins because they ri someone rises to the occasion. Someone yeah. gets intimidated or they get nervous or they get sure. hesitant or whatever. So there's so many things that yeah. are coming into play. Yeah. And how much a racing is like just mental. Yeah, so much mental. So much mental. I'd say like my arc of the weekend was usually like, um, you know, yes, I could be fast in practice, sometimes not. Um, I would say my strength was the race. I'd say that like, Qualifying was my weakness. My biggest weakness is probably qualifying. Like first practice, I just was not one of those drivers that blitzed it. Like mm -hmm. I wasn't one of those that just like went way past. I just, I'm much, much more methodical about it. So I'd say like first practice and qualifying were not my strong suit, but the rest I was good. And so the race always got better for me. Um, but the mental side is so important. Like just, keeping your head in the game. When I was younger, I used to make, I was I used to get so angry inside the car. Like I could come on the radio and I would just say every swear word I could think of for us like mad at someone in front of me. And then it was kind of pointed out and I realized that um, uh, I, I'm probably not helping, my folk, helping myself on track actually. Um, because I'm taking my mind so out of the game that I'm not, the, that I'm not passing him as quickly as I could. And also just realizing it ends up being my damn responsibility. Like I can complain all I want, but I'm just making up excuses really. Yeah. It's my job. Even if they make it harder on me than someone else, it's still my reality. Yeah. You still have to deal with it. Did so once I realized that, I was like, I just need to I just need to shut my mouth and get by them as quick as possible because that's my best bet to making this making this go as well. Did as someone tell you this or was that a self-realization? Um I think I have somebody kind of had mentioned like, you know, you take yourself like you take yourself out of the game when you are mad like that. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, okay, that makes some sense. Yeah. How old were you when you started realizing that you should not get so mad? Uh, probably in, my, in the middle of my IndyCar days. So mm -hmm. I would say like uh, late 20s. Mm -hmm. 
there's <laughs> a lot of stuff we got to learn. It's so crazy, isn't it? I, I mean, and, and what's crazy too is how much you learn after it's all over yeah. with, yeah. right? Because it's so, it's so hard to take it all in. It's so hard to even, we can't see ourselves clearly. Yeah. So it takes a lot of time and growth and other people and experiences and patterns to be able to show us who we are. Yeah. When we're in it, we're in it. We're so distracted that we're not able to really be very philosophical about ourselves or like deeper into understanding mm-hmm. ourselves from a, a, a on the mental side of things or why we do things. So it takes time. Yeah. And what's hard <laughs> for you is it's all recorded history. Oh, yeah. Like you're everything that you did when you were freaking 22 years old out on the track. It's like, oh, you can go watch that on YouTube right now. Yeah, but thank God there wasn't phones doing what they do now. <laughs> That's true. England would have been a <laughs> lot worse. <laughs> I see every now and again, I'll see a photo. Somebody's like, oh, look at this picture. And I'm thinking like, what do, I mean, what do we have the bulbs that flashed and broke? Oh, Is yeah. it that old? Like, um, and I'm like, I'm looking, I'm like, oh, dude, do I look drunk in that photo? Or <laughs> it'd be like four people at a club, and I'm like, oh, geez. <laughs> yep. Thankfully, there was no cell phones back then. Well, there was in England. It was actually cell phone time. There wasn't in America, but like, but there wasn't cameras on the cell phones. Totally, exactly yeah. right. And we still had to use like, you still had to go through the letters on each number. Oh, yeah. We didn't have like a full keyboard, so Check. it was a bit of effort. <laughs> All right, so now you're in the Toyota Atlantic Series. Um, you get the first podium by a woman in Monterey. We we go into the 2004 season. First woman to win pole position at Portland International. Uh, you finished second in that race. So you're uh, old, old Ray Hall made a good bet. He did. He did, and I finished third in the championship my second year. And um, and I remember. <clears throat> so there was a it was a two year contract with uh, the third year being. Uh, an option for the team for me to go race IndyCar. And my my attorney uh, did a great job uh, negotiating this contract. Um, my sweet Jack, I love him. I, st- I actually just talked to him a, a couple of months ago. Is he still your attorney? No, he's not. Um, uh, but he uh, he did this deal and it was two years. And the third year being the option, it was for, for $500,000. If Bobby wanted me to go to IndyCar, I was gonna get pay- paid half a million dollars to go race IndyCars which is a great deal, You're like right? Like, yeah, and so I, obviously you want them to re-up, right? Um, so it's the beginning of the second year of, of Atlantics, and I'm standing in uh, the pagoda in the media room at the Indianapolis 500. It's that weekend, and it's Thursday, which is media day. So Bobby and his drivers are up doing their media availability in front of everybody, and I'm just watching, again, just watching. And somebody asks him about me and he said that I was going to race in the Indy 500 the next year and I didn't nobody knew and he just like (laughs) dropped this was May too like the season just started like we have the whole rest of the way to go so 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 now I know all of a sudden that I'm going to race in the Indy 500 the next year he's taking he's picking up the third year option year of my contract I'm gonna get paid half a million dollars (laughs) and I um I go race Indy cars the next year pumped yeah um and now this becomes what the Ray Hal Letterman yeah. is that when it becomes yep. that? Yep. So David Letterman's into freaking racing. Yeah, he's Why from Indiana. So that's where it yeah, comes from. Yeah, he grew up there, and he grew up going to the track, and yeah. And so he's super hyped on it, and you roll into this. I think your first race, you crash your first race. Big one. That was when um, that was uh, that was a really big crash. Um, that I it was there was an accident in one and two. It was about three quarters of the way through the race. 
and there was a car sliding down the track and I was going underneath the car and I didn't make it by in time and it clipped my clipped the rear right rear of my car and shot it nose going turning to the right shot it up into the wall hit not head on but you know at a, at a pretty steep angle and uh, slid down the track ended up you know it was kind of on fire slid on slid in onto the grass the medical medical team came over the trucks there and I get out of the car and I'm like stumbling and I actually am so out of it I turn the opposite direction of the ambulance which tells me I'm really out of it mm-hmm. I get in the ambulance. I don't remember any of this. I get to the medical center. I don't remember any of this. I wake up on a table and I open my eyes and I see a bright light above me like this one. Oh, and I, you were I, dead. I thought I was dead. Dang. I had no idea where I was. And I was like, what's going on? What's going on? And my mom was there. And then a priest comes over the other side. <laughs> I think know. I'm dead. <laughs> you know the only the, the only next thing I could remember thinking other than like, am I dead? My mom was like, it's okay, honey. You just had a little accident. I'm like, accident? I'm dead, mom. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then the next thing I remember thinking is, um, oh, do, oh, I hope they don't take my suit off because I, I didn't wear underwear. Mm. Like I just wore my suit because not trying to like have provocative um, information, but I like my hips would be, um, the belts are so tight that I'm not, heavy enough to to have a lot of like fabric like a lot of skin and fat so the hips my hips needed no wrinkles Mm. so underwear and things like that would like wrinkle under there so i just limited all things that could wrinkle and like have a seam on my hip bone have you guys ever gone skiing you know when there's just like one little thing that's on your shin or on your ankle and by the end of the day it's a giant problem it was like that in the car so i i didn't wear underwear ever and so i was like i hope they don't take my suit off because i don't have any underwear on (laughs) and then i got yelled at because i didn't have the right ear pieces in and i'm thinking this all seems like a lot right now i don't feel feel like you should be yelling at me for not having my accelerometer ear pieces in when i uh you know i'm like dead uh but anyway so i got rushed to the hospital in the ambulance I'm in the ambulance on the way and I apparently kept asking the nurses the same question over and over again because they said, honey, you've asked that question three times already. And I just couldn't remember, right? So I just kept asking, I kept asking, did it look bad? <laughs> like, I'm like, was it spectacular? Uh, and so I get there and, you know, we do the MRI and scan and everything. And at that point in time, I was married and he was a physical therapist. So he knew all the like, like, technical lingo to get me out and so I I didn't have to stay overnight and left and flew home and I had a race two weeks later at Phoenix so I sat on the couch with ice packs all over me because I had a lot of bruises um, I was uh, I also did some um, electrical sort of like it's like lights and um, noises to mm-hmm. reprogram my brain um, so I did this for like two weeks and then I, I raced it I raced at Phoenix, which was a hard race, and I sucked, and I did terrible, but I well, was, I was cleared to concussion. race. Yeah, yeah, you had a massive concussion. Yeah. Like, today's concussion protocol, they'd probably not let you. Oh, I don't know if they yeah. do that in car well, racing. No, they but. did. We still had the, the you still had to go take, I still had to go take the test. Okay. So, since I had two weeks, I went and took it the week of the race, and um, and it's the same protocol as they do now. It's like the dots and the lines and the numbers and the, yeah, it's all the whole memory cognitive thing. It's the it's the concussion protocol test. Check. And then you sucked in Phoenix. I so. sucked in Phoenix. But. Uh, but you end up uh, fourth 
in Indy, Japan, the the Japan 300, which was only another few weeks after that. So that one was Homestead, two was Phoenix. I don't remember what three was. I think I think there was maybe one more, and then and then it was uh, Motegi, mm-hmm. which is the Japan race. And uh, I qualified on the front row on my uh, when I went, and I finished fourth at Motegi. And then the next race was the Indy 500. Mm-hmm. And the Indy 500, you're rolling into this. Is what I was talking about earlier. You like had one of the, you had the fastest practice speed. Yeah, I won practice a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it did pay. Yeah. So dead. people are freaking hyped. I mean, people yeah. are thinking like, if you're the fr- oh, yeah. fastest practice speed. Yeah. And I and I and in qualifying, um, I was fastest on Fast Friday, leading into qualifying. Oh no, that was before the race. I was actually fastest on. How that old day. are you at this point? Twenty three. What's the normal age of a driver? I mean, that's that's young. Normal? I mean, that's a no, young normal age. Okay. That's a young normal age to start. Yep. Um, and uh, I I I went into qualifying. It was a really cold day, and I I was so nervous, and I just I kind of similar to like the last race in IndyCar that I did, I felt like I was just going to have to, I was like, no matter what, I'm not going to lift. And by lifting, it means come off the mm-hmm. throttle. So I thought as soon as I go out, I am not coming off the throttle. I am going to, once I start, once I start my lap for, and you had to do four timed laps and they took your, they take your average. So I was like, I'm not going to lift. I'm not going to lift. So I went into turn one and it's a really cold day and the track's cold and I didn't lift until I had to lift or I would have crashed. So I got completely sideways, mm-hmm. caught it which is actually the best thing I could have done because if I had just qualified on the pole, everyone just said you had a fast car, and a mm-hmm. fast engine, like you just qualified on the pole. But I actually showed some skill mm-hmm. and I caught the car at 225 or 35 miles an hour. <sighs> and, um, and then I finished that qualifying and I never lifted after that and I qualified fourth. Mm-hmm. Damn, okay. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about the fuel uh, like strategy. In yeah. like the Indianapolis 500. So there's What's going on with that? So many stops that Indy 500 is where there's the most amount of sort of different strategies that mm-hmm. play out. Um, so you know you have to pit like every you know 30 or so laps, and uh, and, and that's so for tires and fuel. Fuel mostly. Mostly fuel. Yeah. So um, so like at the end of the race, I ran. I had 50 lap tires on, but that's because I had already done a bunch of laps, and then I came in under a yellow because I had spun and had to go to the back. I came in under a yellow. We topped off, and then I never came in again. So I had 50 lap tires at the end of the race, um, but I had I was running out of fuel as well because we were stretching it. So um, I inherit. I I I. I inherited the lead through a pit stop cycle because again, like I said, I splashed, topped off on a, on a, on a caution and then, um, and then I never came in again. So everyone else came in, tires, fuel, everything. And I took the lead and I led um, for a long time and then um, uh, came in, f- uh, then there was a, a caution and uh, somebody had gotten by me. And so I was starting second on this restart and there's not that many laps left. And I remember coming on the radio, I'm like, everybody say a prayer. And uh, they're like, we've been saying them all day. <laughs> my sweet Ray, my engineer. And so uh, Green Flag came out. I timed it perfectly and got a great run. And I passed Dan into turn one and took the lead again. 
And there's a really great clip. It's my favorite clip on YouTube. It's like 30 or 40 seconds long. And it's of me taking the lead, but it's from the stands and it's from a fan. And so it's like obviously low quality res. And <clears throat> but it, what it what it shows you is what the fans were doing. And after that race, everybody asked me, they're like, well, not everybody, but many people asked me, could you hear the fans cheering when you took the lead? I'm like, no, <laughs> I could not. Not with all of my friends with their 800 horsepower or whatever yeah. we had back then, um, driving 240 miles an hour. But it was a big moment, and um, so it was a really cool clip, and it gives me goosebumps every single time I watch it. And uh, and so I took the lead again. I led for a while, but then then I pulled away. And uh, but then I, we had to save fuel, and we didn't really have the same fuel. M- monitoring system that I had moving forward after that, which is sort of a sensor that was needed to see exactly how much fuel I had. Anyway, so I was detuning myself. So there was fuel mixtures. So you can full rich is like full fuel. That's full power. And then you can detune yourself by taking fuel away from the engine, which takes power away. So I was like fuel slot one, that's the most full bore pulling away. Fuel slot two, pulling away. Fuel slot three, pulling away. Fuel slot four, maintaining fuel slot five maybe not maintaining as much fuel slot six and seven that eight was map was a caution map that was for that would cut cylinders under caution so it would be like you'd never run fuel slot eight but six and seven was was i was now getting caught and um and so i got passed and they were kind of just telling me like just finish the race the only thing, I mean, I wouldn't change my life for anything. I, mm-hmm. I love the whole way that it's all gone. And I, I'm totally a believer in like the butterfly effect and sliding doors. One thing leads to a change in everything. Um, but I mean, in hindsight, I, I could have just said, screw it. And I had to run whatever fuel slot it took for me to just maintain so they wouldn't catch me and just roll the dice. Mm-hmm. And I would have made it to the it- end on fuel. Dude, oh, that's what yeah. you did a post-mortem and you're like, yeah, yeah. you have this much I guess I had left. like two and a half gallons still left, which is two and a half laps. <sighs> Jack. So you end up getting fourth place. I got fourth Which place. is still enough to cause, yeah. kind of initiate oh, yeah. some, some, some Yeah, mania. so that's when Danica Mania started. Yeah. And I remember before the race, I was told, I was, they were like, hey, if you win, you're going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. I'm like, okay. Okay. And uh, so... The race got over with, and they're and then and they're gonna want a photo shoot. They're gonna want to take a picture. Mm-hmm. Like they're gonna want they're gonna want something. I'm like whatever, I won't care if that happens. Um, and so the race got over with, and my my publicist was like, they still want to do a photo shoot. They don't know if we're gonna run it for the cover, but they still want to do a photo shoot. Mm-hmm. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? I'm like exhausted, and so I remember I poured a giant solo cup of red wine went to this location where this photographer had a setup and it was on the way to dinner and I was there for about 15 minutes and did this photo shoot and um, and then went to dinner to get absolutely hammered and um, and celebrate the night and um, and then uh, they said the next day they're like they're running it as a cover and then they took that cover and the next race was Texas Motor Speedway which is the guy that ran it was a, is a huge promoter and so he like made a huge billboard of me of this cover and yeah would proceed along the years to uh, to pr- 
to be a very big promoter, meaning like at one point, I think the next year, Dan Weldon and I had a fight at Milwaukee before we went to it. And so we literally were painted on the like a billboard like a looking like off. fighters. Yeah, yeah, like fighters. Um, so anyway, so I have this huge billboard now at Texas the next race. And and that and then and and, and, and there was a lot of people that got pissed off along the way. Like mm-hmm. there was some um, autograph sessions every single weekend we had to do and they would separate it by driver. Right. So it's just like you get in line for whatever driver you wanted. And um, and so my line was so long Mm -hmm. and there'd be nobody else in any other line. So at one point in time, the drivers from the team that I ended up driving for next, the um, Andretti team, they all, they all um, uh, like vetoed the autograph session. They, they sat out They're They're like, we're not doing it because you have all separate lines and you should have one line and nobody comes and this is doesn't seem fair. And so, so yeah, so you made people angry. Yeah, I did. I mean, yes, they, 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 you know, at the end of the day, people's reaction to you says a lot more about them than it does Mm, about you. Sure does. Always does. And so really like what that's saying is that, you know, they were, they were feeling insecure. They were mad that they didn't get the attention for things that they did or, or they're like, what could I have done to, you know, that says a lot more about them than doesn't mean I didn't do anything, but yeah, they got pissed off. What's the equivalent? Echo Charles. Yes, sir. What's the equivalent today <clears throat> to cover of Sports Illustrated? Because so back in the day, look, mm-hmm. you know, internet wasn't quite as what the internet right. is now. Yep. Because so if you were a cover of Sports Illustrated, yeah. that was a big deal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What's yeah. the equivalent right now? There, I don't think there, there's there, an there equivalent. There really isn't one. Yeah, because mm. it's all like fractioned of, you know, mm. fractured or whatever. Yeah. yeah, Sports Illustrated, that was the hub. Yeah, like they, yeah. you had the unified attention of the world. Yeah. Like there's no way you could get that much unified attention of the world right now. Maybe if mm. you were, well, no, it, you couldn't. When you think about it, actually really, Sports Illustrated in the sports world, you yeah. know, cause you got the sports world, then you got like, I mean, this is way smaller, but like Black Belt Magazine or mm. something, you know, like you have yeah, your sports certain hubs for, yeah, oh yeah, it was so way more mainstream for too. sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so now it's kind of the same deal, but now instead of like, three or four or five hubs for each activity or whatever. There's like, I don't know, yeah. 150. That's an interesting thing to think about is yeah. like, what's an equivalent to that? And uh, Like for a younger listener right now that doesn't remember Sports Illustrated and right. what Sports Illustrated was and how huge it was, like yeah. it's, it's a huge deal. Oh yeah. And so you end up 12th in the overall standings, but you're rookie of the year. Mm-hmm. Rookie of the Year for the Indy 500, Rookie of the Year for the IndyCar Series. There's a documentary called Girl Racer that comes out. You start your first of your famous GoDaddy ads. <laughs> so all that's happening. You're Female Athlete of the Year. You go on freaking tour. You're on The Late Show. You're on The Today Show. You're on Jimmy Kimmel, Good Morning America, CNN, every talk show in America. So this is, it's on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it got real busy. <laughs> Back when I was in England racing only on the weekends, I remember thinking to myself, how does anyone make a full-time job out of being a race car driver? <laughs> and then I found out. When you're in between races, now that, like at, at, with this, I keep visioning you know, people like you breaking down with your car and like, h- how much time do you spend driving when you're not racing now that you're a pro? Is it mm. all the time, all day, every day? No, no, it's, I mean, it's, there's a, a, it's expensive. So Mm -hmm. there were a lot of actual rules got put in place to uh, help the teams out with budgets. So we didn't have that many test days. There'd be like a certain amount of test days that you could do in a year. And it might be like four. 
What? Um, yeah. Okay, this is weird. In my mind, I thought you drove that car freaking every day. Oh, no. All you'd, day. So you'd really pretty much just do the weekends. So, um, but there'd be practice on the weekend. So you get there and they might have two practices on Friday, um, practice on Saturday morning, then you might qualify and then the next day you race. Right. So there's like, there's like a, I can't remember. There's a, every series has a different flow and sometimes they'd change it from year to year. But basically you'd end up having a lot of times like three practices, a qualifying and a race. So you'd get three to four hours of practice uh, and then qualifying and then the race. Oh, damn. So I it's totally actually like a, a half day of practice. You yeah. get kind of like a half day of practice because when you go test at a track, you'd practice from nine to 12 and then one to five. How about video game simulator type things? You ever tried those it. things? Oh, I hated them. Did, did other people use them? Um, not back then, then, but now they do. And now, like especially in Formula One, I do a lot of stuff for Formula One now with uh, with hosting or with um, analyst stuff. And um, F1 drivers do a lot of simulation work. Like they do, they're in the simulator, mm-hmm. um, and it's su- like super real. And they wear the helmet. Yeah. I did a little bit of it in NASCAR, but we didn't do any of that in IndyCar. Mm-hmm. And so, um, no. Um, but. You know, I learned a trick really young when I was in go-karting and a visualization and no one told me. Like, I don't know how I, I don't even know why I had the idea, but I just, I knew, I knew that a way to practice was to close my eyes and I would, it wasn't like I just like drew my way around. I would discipline myself to like, but I would do it perfect. I didn't have to be like a accurate lap time in my mind's eye of the lap, but I just had to make sure that. I was driving the lap and I would hit every corner just perfectly. So I would practice a perfect lap. And I did this a lot of times before I went, went out for qualifying or mm-hmm. and then before the race, just like visualizing a perfect lap. Um, so, uh, but that's, I mean, obviously you're not doing that many of those laps. All right, so now you're signed for another one with uh, Ray Hall, yep. Letterman. Yep. You end up doing the, the 24 hours of Daytona. Oh yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. And that's with a few different drivers. Usually do four drivers total. And you're going 24 hours. See how yeah. far you can go. Yeah. So I think that first year, I feel like I was like with Rusty Wallace and I don't remember who else. There was a couple of really good drivers. Um, and we were pretty fast. But it was because um, it was be, it was because there were, the season was so short in IndyCar at that point. Mm-hmm. I think our we only had maybe 14 races in the season. It was our shortest season we'd ever had. And man, I don't maybe we didn't even start to like April or something. So I, I think I was... I was doing that because it was like my dad was like, you know, help me out. Like, probably should get some more seat time instead of sitting out of the car for six months. Mm-hmm. Check. Yeah. And then um, Toyota Indy 300. This is where Paul Dana got killed. Day of the yeah, race. beginning of 2006. Yeah, exactly. My second year in IndyCar. He died in the morning, and then we didn't race that day. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was a, there was a crash, and he came around and didn't see it in time and hit it head on, and. Um, and he died, and he, they were getting a hold of his wife. His wife was in church, she was pregnant, he didn't know. Or maybe, he, I don't know, I feel like for some reason my mind said he didn't know, but she was pregnant, and she was like in church on Sunday when this happened. And um, so he, uh, so yeah, so we sat out that race, but that was the first time, that was not the first time I had actually been at the track when someone died though. Mm-hmm. When I was in England, there was someone that died in, in, at the track. Um, he crashed and hit an Armco barrier and how it has like gaps in it, you know, the Armco. Mm-hmm. There's like maybe three or two or three levels of the Armco and he, and he hit the Armco and, and uh, died immediately. <sighs> and you're, when's your next race after that? Uh, probably within the next week or two. We race like either every week or every other week. Any, any sort of uh, you know, hesitation? So what was interesting is that 
we didn't race that day. And I, f I basically was like, felt bad for my family and loved ones around me because I, w knowing that that's a potential for me, I was totally ready to go out there. Mm -hmm. And I kind of had this feeling of like, I feel, I feel like, I don't know what this says about me, but I feel bad for you guys that I don't worry. I, like I'm not, mm -hmm. that's not as concerning enough for me to go like, I need a minute. Mm -hmm. I was like, I would have gone out there. Yeah. yeah. The weird thing is too, uh, I was just hunting. You probably can associate with that. Well, definitely can associate with losing friends, uh, but I was out hunting and I was hunting for whitetail in Iowa mm -hmm. and you're waiting, 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 waiting. And it's a little bit boring, I guess. Yeah, it's a little bit boring. Like you're sitting in a tree stand or you're sitting in a blind and then all of a sudden it's just like buck comes in and it's over in 30 seconds. Yeah. Like it just all happens so fast. <laughs> but what I noticed, I watched a bunch of your races. I watched a bunch of these crashes is everything is just normal, normal, normal. I'm not saying it's boring, but it's normal, 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 normal. And then in a split second, yeah. it's just like someone's dead. Like so fast, it just happens. And it could literally happen at any moment in that entire race sure. from the first lap until the very you last You could do lap. it by yourself. Something could break on your car and you mm -hmm. could hit the wall and you just hit it at a weird angle and something happens and you die. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that's exactly right. So <sighs> when you're in the car and you have a vibration, and it's getting worse and you're radioing in. Let's say you're in the race and you're like, ah, oh, got a vibration, it's getting worse. They're like, okay, we don't see anything on our end because they're getting live mm -hmm. data streaming from the car. They're like, let us know if it gets any worse. And it's like, oh my God, like it, you feel like your life's in your hands of mm -hmm. like, how much do I compromise whether or not I feel like I should be careful versus screw it? Because mm -hmm. you don't know what screw it means. Mm -hmm. What if a wheel falls off? And that stuff happens. And it happens. Yeah. I literally drove down the front straightaway at Kentucky one time testing, and I felt this weird feeling, and I s jumped out of the throttle. And I'm going 200. If we're on an oval, Kentucky was an oval, you're, all, you're going over 200 every time. And I lift out of the throttle, and as soon as I lift off, like this thing, whoop, and it spins around, and the, like, the right rear literally fell off the car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Check. All right. Um, you end up six. And look, there's so much stuff that you've done. I was trying to tell you this before the podcast. Like, there's you've done so much stuff in your life and so much stuff in racing. It was kind of hard to capture it all. But you end up sixth at Grand Prix in Saint Grand Prix at Saint Petersburg, eighth in Japan 300, tenth at the Indy 500. You end up ninth in the in the final standings. This is 2006, and then you switch to and Andretti Green. Why would yep. you make that switch? Well, Offer comes up. The, this is big it, negotiations. We weren't as fast the second year. Like I just, you know, I felt like a, I felt like I needed a new opportunity. Um, um, obviously, at that point in time, negotiating everything from like the best team, the most important thing was driving for the best team you possibly could, but also money, mm -hmm. salary, um, sponsors. So, um, so I just felt like it was a better opportunity somewhere else. And Andretti, obviously, there's a big name there. When you say the best team, is that the people that are working in the pit? Is that is that the people that are designing the cars, or what? What is it? That is what it's made up of. But usually when I say best team, it just means they're the fastest. They are, they have a good, maybe they have a good combination, like the engine manufacturer that they're running, the mm -hmm. chassis, like they just, and they have good engineers and they have good pit crews and they have a great reputation and year in, year out, they're really strong. Mm -hmm. um, 2007 seasons, like eighth at St. Petersburg, seventh in Kansas, eight at, eighth at the Indy 500. Um, Eighth at the Foyt 225. 
This is where you get in a fight with Dan Weldon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I remember every year. It's so funny you're saying this. I this is such a dumb story, but. I remember going in to get facials because I've been getting facials for like 20 years. And my friend Shannon, and I, she'd be like, how'd you do this weekend? I was like, eighth. She's like, I'm sick of you finishing eighth. Can you finish something different than eighth? Um, I'm still friends with Shannon. Um, and uh, but So we were pretty fast, actually. But yeah, things kept happening. So the, this race at um, Milwaukee was an exciting one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've realized that part of what makes me remember a weekend is not necessarily how I start, but how I start and then finished in the delta. So this was one of those weekends that it was a huge delta. I I started off, I was slow in practice, and then we just like hail Mary to a whole different setup for the race, qualified in the back. And I had passed all the way. I was passing Dan Weldon for fifth place in the first stint. So the stint just means how long you're running those tires. So this is in the first like 80 laps of the race, and the race is hundreds of laps long. So I haven't even pitted yet, and I'm already passing for fifth. And I go into turn one and I go underneath them and he comes down and he just chops me and hits my tires and it bounces me into the grass on the inside. Now, we're not going 200 because this is a short track. It's a mile. But I mean, what are we doing? 150, 180. And so I about lose it and I come back out and I am so mad. And so um, I end up finishing fifth in the end. I, I go way, all the way back to last when this happens and, uh, and I end up finishing fifth. And after the race, I... You don't normally see drivers like you think, oh, we're with everybody all weekend. But shoot, you get in, you, you go to your team, you get in your car and your you know, you don't see drivers. So Dan's literally like right behind me on pit lane when he stops his car. And so I, I just go over and I just go over to him and I grab him and I grab him by the neck and I'm like putting my hand around his shoulder like I'm like hanging out, buddy. But I am grabbing his trap so freaking hard that if you look at a picture, you can see it and you can see him like cringing as he's walking and um and so i asked him like i was obviously pissed off and i was asking him what he was doing and i was yelling at him mm-hmm. um and then uh yeah so that was you know these are all things that just like propelled the mania and propelled the pro- popularity and the curiosity i get it like i don't some to some degree i don't like myself for all the things that i've done but they were just all part of growing up and they were part of my decisions and they were honest and authentic right like i we were talking about before we started about this authenticity thing i've said forever that i totally understand that not everyone's gonna like me it's not it's not possible to be yourself and have everybody like you but at least they can respect your authenticity so if the if i got an inter, if i was being interviewed i mean when i moved to, when i went to nascar godaddy sent me to media training because i never would say their name like i didn't say my sponsors because i'd answer the question i wouldn't be like oh how can i like fit all my sponsors in and give some bullshit answer about like the guys back at the shop you know i would answer the question so i was always really honest and authentic and um, and so I was really mad, and and um, and everybody knew about it. Is that being mad? How much of that being mad is like you could get killed, and how much of that being mad is like I could have won this freaking race. I could have won this race totally, <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> actually, I remember when I'd like pray before I to, you know, went out on the track, and I would actually feel like I was catching a little loophole by asking to do really well, because. You know, most people be like, let's be safe. And yes, I wanted to be protected, but I asked to do really well because I was like, because if I do really well, I didn't crash. <laughs> like I felt like I was asking in a loophole. <laughs> uh, felt a little selfish, but I was like, look, asking you shall receive, right? Apparently you had some kind of a meeting with the with the president um, of Indy to reconcile with, with Dan after this incident. Oh, I'm sure we were totally called to like the, yeah. the, 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 the penalty box. 
<laughs> I've been called to the penalty box many times. The <laughs> other time I was called to the penalty box was because I was leaving Loud in Motor Speed, like Loud, New Hampshire, at the racetrack, and they weren't letting all the golf carts out after the race. And I was like, "We're on a golf cart. Our cars are parked outside. We're trying to hurry up and get to our car that's parked there and waiting and staged for us so we can drive to the airport and hurry up and fly home." And um, so I was like, "Here." I was like, "Well, give me your radio." And so I got on the main radio and I was like, um, "Why are they not letting?" And so Mike Helton and NASCAR. That was another like penalty. Box weekend where I was like, he's like, you can't ever do that again. I'm like, oh shoot. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you end up second in Detroit. You end up seventh overall in that season, 2007, 2008, tenth in Saint Saint Petersburg, Indy, uh, Japan, 300. You end up winning finally. Yeah. yeah, and that's exactly how it felt. Like I, I'm. There was opportunities along the way in the years previous, and um, you know, I, all the way tracking back to my fourth or fifth race in IndyCar at the Indy 500. And um, and it just felt like it was just, it just took a long time. And so it felt like such a relief. Yeah, it was a, it was a big relief. And First woman to win a top level sanctioned open wheel car racing event. Yeah. yeah. Ever. Really any racing. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not great on history and stats, but mm-hmm. um, but I'm gonna say any, cause no, none, none, none have ever won a NASCAR, none have ever won an F1, and I'm gonna say in any racing. How much hype was there when you won that race? Uh, any top level, I should clarify that, not any racing, because girls have won. Yeah. Um, how much what? Was it crazy? Did you get the cover of Sports Illustrated again? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. It went, um, <laughs> I did, yeah. <laughs> and, and the cover this time said, yes, she can. <laughs> oh, um, I, uh, I can't remember, actually, what the first cover said. I was trying to remember. I just remember it was all red. <laughs> and I signed over A-Rod's head every single time I autographed because of the positioning of where I was on the thing and I kept remember thinking he'd probably get mad at that um, but I uh, but I got on the cover of Sports Illustrated again we shot that before the race weekend because I was it was going into the Indy 500 and um, and yeah I I, uh, I it was it was it was a busy time we flew straight flew straight took the helicopter to from the track to the airport um, drank a whole bottle of sake, like a giant, giant, giant <laughs> bottle of sake with my, my mom and dad were there, thankfully. And Haley, who's been with me since then, um, she's my VP, my manager, my assistant, my name, at my be- one of my best friends. Um, but we're all, we all flew um, to uh, Long Beach, California. And uh, the, last, the last ever champ car race was that weekend. It was, they were, they were gonna, they, it was done after mm-hmm. that and they were merging with us as the IndyCar series. So I went to that and um, and was, yeah, I landed and slept for about two or three hours and woke up at 3 a.m. for hair and makeup to uh, be on all the morning shows on the mm-hmm. East Coast. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a bit media tour. Just hype it all up. Yeah. Uh, fourth at Kansas Speedway, then the Indy 500 comes around again and you have a collision in the pit. Oh my God, that was the only, yeah, other than my very last one that was, uh, yeah, I was, I would have, um, I was running sixth and um, uh, Ryan Briscoe came out of his pit box and he just went straight to the wall, which just means there's a wall separating um, the track and the pit lane. And so there's only so much room. And so he came out of his pit box and they just sent him and you're not, you're supposed to make sure you're clear all the way out. You go lane by lane Mm -hmm. and he just went all the way out and he hit my left rear and it broke the suspension and I pulled off to the side 
And then they wheeled me back all the way back to my pit box. I was so mad. It was the last pit stop of the race. I was running sixth. And um, and I, I, I got out of my car and I didn't, I, you could find footage of this very easily. And I got out of my car and I didn't give a shit what anyone said. I just got out and I started walking down pit lane with my helmet on, stomping my way down to Ryan Briscoe's pit stall because he was in his pit box. And all I kept thinking is if I can't go back out, you can't go back out. And so I was like, I don't know what I'll do. I don't know if I'm gonna jump on his front wing and break it or take his steering wheel or what the hell I'm gonna do, but he's not getting back out. And so I make it like three quarters of the way down there and I can actually hear the crowd now because they can see what I'm doing. For all I know, I'm on the Jumbotron. I don't know. And I'm not thinking about any of this stuff, though. Like when people ask about feeling like the crowd or hearing or thinking about things, I actually don't feel like anyone's watching once I'm out there because there's so much to watch. I don't think they're watching me. And uh, and so this very large security guard who is in charge of all of security for IndyCar, Charles, came in front of me and he stopped and stood there in front of me. And um, I'm like, <laughs> I'm looking up and he's like, and he points his finger back, like get over the pit wall. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I went over. And in the meantime, Roger Penske is on Ryan Briscoe's radio and he's on the radio going, uh, uh, Ryan, uh, put your visor down. What? He's put your visor down <laughs> because I was heading down pit lane and just didn't want him to like, he's like, just put yeah. your visor down. Um, so anyway, uh, but I got sent back over and then I had to walk my way back to my pit stall. And so I was super angry. Again, one of those things that like, it's not the, like I got, I, I, I created drama outside of just like the actual on track stuff because I, I'm just different. Like I just, I get really angry and I'm not afraid to show it. And, um, and uh, it's just part of my personality. <laughs> yeah, it's really wild that you can go watch. Like I watched the, so many clips of you and oh, the, really? my, my YouTube algorithm right now is just <laughs> overflowing. By with the way, freaking, you're on a high algorithm with mine too. Yeah, Absolutely. freaking NASCAR and uh, indie racing and all these little clips of you. So like I was watching, cause you know, I read about it. And I was like, oh, I, I would read what happened. And they'd be like, what does that look like? And I was like, wait, is this story like, what's the spin on this? You know what I mean? You think, yeah. what's the spin on this? And like, what does it really look like? And so you go watch it. And you can watch it in slow motion. And you can yeah. watch like an analyst and like all these different things. So all these little crashes and stuff, I've watched them all. Oh, probably God. from nine different angles. Oh, man, and to watch you, to watch you, yes, you are walking back to the pit with like full freaking anger. Full FU energy. Full FU energy, 100%. It's so funny to watch. Uh, funny. Yeah, this, exactly. Oh, that's I'm just sure one. I mean, I've kicked. Time. I remember one time I got so mad, I ran out of fuel at the end of a race in Michigan. And I was coming back and I like threw my helmet and then I got back to the pit and I kicked what I thought was a full water barrel thing and it was empty and I knocked it over and I literally ran forward and picked it up and put it up because I stood it back up because I was like, oops, that's not what I meant to do. I just wanted to kick a tire. <laughs> oh, check. You end up 2008, six in the final rankings. Uh, you're still just going media crazy. You're on American Chopper, by the way, right? Um, all kinds of different stuff. 2009 season, in the off season, you go, you do another 24 hours of Daytona. You guys had some kind of issue, you didn't finish that. Uh, I think the car got jacked yep. up. It, uh, I think so. overheating or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, fourth at Long Beach, fifth in Kansas, third at the Indy 500. Yeah, yeah, had a, had a shot to win that one, a really good one. Um, that was probably my most legitimate um, speed should have won um i mean the first one was good but i there was some strategy involved this mm -hmm. one was an authentic like you're running third you could have won the race 
Um, I there was a really long, long caution late in the race, and uh, one of my teammates crashed, and they had to fix the safer barrier. It took 14 laps of caution to do that. And so I was good on fuel, but everyone else started to get gooder and gooder and gooder. Oh, because they're, so, they're topping off. They, well, no, because they were under caution. Oh, so they're running slow. So they're running like slow. slow. So instead of having well. to run full speed, they're running slow. They're in level eight. Yep. And we're all, thing. and they're, and while they might have, they might have had to pit with 10 laps to go, maybe five laps to go, now they don't have to pit. So I was good on fuel and would have won. Um, so I run third, and I, I, I'm like all over, I think it was Castro Neves' ass forever, and I just couldn't find, I could not get by him, and I ended up third. Um, and I came into the pits afterwards, and I remember getting out of the car and looking at my engineers, and, and they were like, hmm. And I thought, I didn't know this scenario, by the way. They didn't tell me, like, those guys in front of you, um, like, you would have won. I don't know anything about that. Like, I'm just doing the best I can with what I have. And um, so I find that out after I come in, and they're like, you really should have won the race because everyone else should have run out of fuel, and you shouldn't have, but that caution was so long. And they, so they were so bummed because, like, we had planned it perfect, and, uh, and we were third. So it was like we were running really well, and we were totally the winning strategy. Uh, and so they were really bummed and then I found out why because <laughs> mm. I thought afterwards I thought I did good I did third like good right <laughs> what are the unwritten rules for like you're trying to pass someone that's block like kind of blocking you well in indie cars because it's open wheel there's not much you can do I mean you could just you try and trick them a little you can like fake them out a little bit here and there um, but there's uh, the only thing I'd say is on ovals that where there's multiple lanes when you're running in front of someone there was just kind of an unwritten rule that you weren't supposed to uh, like let's say I'm running the bottom lane mm -hmm. and someone else is running the middle lane if someone came down in the middle of the corner and came in front of me like that's pretty shit because it takes so much aerodynamics off of your car that you, what's going to happen is that you, the front is going to stop turning and then you're going to catch the next lane and then the you're going to have wheel in it which means you're turned and then it's going to catch and then it's going to snap because the back is going to react to the amount of steering you have into it once you hit clean air so a lot of times it end up in this like really big like slide snap moment and so that was kind of the only real Un unwritten rule that you were kind of not really supposed to do so as you're behind this guy you're trying to fake him but there's really yeah. just not much you can do I'm just trying to get the perfect run I'm trying to like I'm just do I'm trying to like time it so mm -hmm. so perfectly because the car is aerodynamically you can't just like run really close and then you have to have a run and that run has to come down the straightaway but you have to be close enough in the corner which is hard when you need downforce to, to get a run actually, otherwise you just get close to them. Mm -hmm. So you need a run where you're like half the distance that you normally are, but you time it just perfectly that you come off the corner and you finish it off halfway down the straightaway and then you pull out mm -hmm. and you get by them. Yeah, so it just you just have to, you have to have enough, have enough speed and you have to time and it right. And the cars are all like they're all, their top speed is, what's the difference between the top speed? If you're running a really fast car, a really slow car, what's the, what's the difference between that? Like a mile, mile an hour? An hour yeah. yeah. So it's not like you're going to blow by anybody. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's not. I mean, as we're talking about percentage-wise, at 240 miles an hour, yeah. it's not much. Check. Um, you end up fifth in the overall standings that year. That's 2009. You have the most viewed Super Bowl ad in 2009, which mm -hmm. was for GoDaddy. It was the enhancement ad where they had a bunch <laughs> of girls that had the enhancements. <laughs> Echo Charles. Yes. And then you had an enhancement on your website. 
So that was the joke. So many of those fun, fun commercials yeah, over the Go years. Daddy, GoDaddy made a bunch of classic commercials with you. 2010, 7th in St. Petersburg, 6th at Indy 500, 2nd at the Texas Motor Speedway, 10th in the overall rate rankings. And this is when you start a little bit of stock car activity. Yeah, so I... I I was kind of curious, and there was there was more and more road course races on the IndyCar schedule than there was. Like we had started with three, and then it went to five, and then it was like seven and eight. And um, I just loved, I really loved oval racing, and so uh, so I I liked road courses, but I, I and I and I, I was becoming increasingly unhappy with where I was team wise, and there was you know more behind the scenes um, business stuff with sponsorship and money and all that stuff that was frustrating and uh and so i was like well maybe nascar are you pulling in like awesome money from like GoDaddy? is GoDaddy your car so sponsor or are they your sponsor they are the car sponsor so oh, at that so. point in time it's going through the team so what had happened was actually i can tell the story i was put on a five-year gag order after it happened so mm-hmm. i i never told the story out loud but i'll tell it why not and so um so i so i i'm driving for andretti and I have a profit sharing contract where I get um, over $9 million, I got 40% of whatever came on the car. So we were able to do math because some of the sponsors I helped bring over, which I paid for in the front end too. When I was driving for Ray Hall, those sponsors, there was a couple of sponsors that came with me and one of them was Argent, another one was maybe One America, I can't remember exactly the other one, Meyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so I didn't get paid at the end of that contract so I didn't make my second year in IndyCar. I didn't finish getting paid that year. And um, I had to also pay additional because those sponsors left and they said it was a breach of contract because I, I, was, I told them where to go. And there's a lot of rules on like that kind of stuff of what you can say and not say. So I, 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 I mean, hundreds of thousands, three or $400,000, which was like half of my earnings in 2006 went back to the team. I didn't get it. Um, but half of it was they didn't pay me and the other half I had to pay them to like get out of the scenario. So I've already helped the team that I'm going to Andretti with these sponsors mm-hmm. by paying this problem off and so and settling. And so um, so then we get into a profit sharing deal. And I mean, I have Argent. I have GoDaddy. I have One America Meyer. Like I have tons of I have really great sponsors. And we also know that the minimum amount that anyone can be on the car for is half a million dollars. And so, you know, this car has way over nine million dollars on it. Like I think the primary was seven. So like, you know, there's a ton of money on the car. And so it comes time to get paid. And we were supposed to get, you know, paperwork on that like we should see what's coming in and we never got any we just we just get paid and I got paid more than the base salary but only based on like a nominal amount and I was always like that's bullshit this doesn't feel like it makes sense and so uh after a couple years I um and we can't get any we don't get actual any official documents that are qualify for anything um one point we got a one pager and by one pager I literally mean it said like the company how much they paid how much went to me and how much went to the team like it was like it was Mm -hmm. bullshit Mm -hmm. it wasn't documents this was on contracts i have no idea what the actual numbers were um and so i went into um mediation and then arbitration so while i was still driving for them i mean i was suing them essentially for a year and a half damn and so, uh, so I had like seven, 300, I had three quarters of a million dollars of legal fees that I had racked up in a year and a half. We went to arbitration 
And um, I mean, one of the sponsors, Arjun, literally wrote a letter that said the only reason why we went to this team was Danica Patrick. The only reason. And they didn't even award me that money. They stood on the sand and said like, oh, well, you know, they came because, you know, Dario Franchitti was married to Ashley Judd and they thought that was cool. And it was like, they just lied and said a bunch of bullshit. But then ultimately one of the guys, the attorney for them said, why should she get all that money? And when he said that line, I knew that was the truth. They did not think I should get all that money. And so, um, so the settlement was something called splitting the baby, which is, I guess, in legal terms. And so I was awarded a million dollars and I, so I didn't lose money, but I didn't really win. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, uh, I mean, I was suing for honestly like 20. Cause I, I mean, there was millions of dollars every year they didn't pay me, millions. And, um, and so we were also going in on like trouble damages and like, you know, we went in mm-hmm. really hard, uh, but we were, were awarded a million dollars. I've never told this story before. And, and no one knows these numbers either. I'm telling you honest numbers too. And when you got that million bucks, you also had, even though you- I paid $750,000. I wanted to also get legal fees back too. That was part mm-hmm. of my, part of what I was suing for as well. Um, and so they, then they literally like never provided documents, like went in and like my attorneys went into their office and they like barely provided anything. And so um, anyway, that was the last day that the attorney for that team worked. He was done after that. And I saw that coming. And, um, and so that was the end of that. That was the end of that. And so I wasn't really happy. Like they weren't paying me. They were, it was like the racing was shifting. And I was like, screw this. I just don't want to be here anymore. And I, there wasn't really much well to, where to go. Andretti was one of the best teams. And um, there was um, Penske, which is really good, but I wasn't going to get a seat on Penske. Um, and, you know, Ganassi was a good team, but, you know, like maybe they don't pay their drivers and they've got some bad reputation here and there. So I'm like, I don't know. And they had a full, full stall too. So I wasn't going to drive for Andretti either. So where was I going to go? So I'm like, screw it. I'll go, to, I'll go race NASCAR. Boom. So I did. And how'd you like that when you showed up there? Um... Well, I actually loved it. When I drove uh, I drove the car for the first time, I had a blast. Like I thought, I was like, I'm home. <laughs> Yeehaw. I remember, oh my God, you'll, it's funny because it includes 10-4. Um, but uh, there was two things that were said in this first test day with this. I mean, I love my crew chief. Um, uh, he was such a nice guy and he was so nice and he was helping me out. And at one point in time, he was saying, you know, when you come off that corner there and you get in that y'all, you know, it's uh, that's right where you want it. And I was like, they say y'all for everything. <laughs> but he was saying y'all. y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and then I remember after on the test, he had sent me a text message and it said 104. And I was like, what does 104 mean? 10-4. <laughs> that was a so, wild thing. Listening to how Tony much. Tony Erie Jr. was his name. He's such much, a great guy. How much you rely on that. Who, who's the person that's like coaching you as you're driving? That's like telling you like, go down, go down, go up. You know, come on. Our, no one. There's no one doing that. The, the, I hear like radio calls. I heard radio calls. People talking to you, telling the, you like. The um, spotter okay. will give you some feedback. They might say, okay, so they're they're not telling you exactly what to do. They're telling you where other cars are around you. It. So if you're out there running, they'll say like uh, you got, um, you know, the eight car is four, you know, five car lengths back, three car lengths back, looking inside, 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 inside clear you know like they'll go go through what someone else is doing they're not necessarily telling you they will sometimes say hey you know uh you're everybody's uh you know you're pulling everybody off of two but you're losing a lot out of four you know they might they can see that stuff and they'll give you some feedback but they're not necessarily telling you what to do they might say hey the the track is 
you know, the lines changing. Everybody's moving up their, uh, you know, their, their, the high lines coming in, um, you know, something like that. And then what about the engineer who's like, hey, you're, this heat, this monitor's going up, or like, or you're saying back, hey, I'm getting vibrations over here. What's yeah. that relationship like? Um, they're the ones that you tell for the handling. So, um, you, you know, I'll say like, you know, it's a really pointy on turn in, um, uh, the center's fine and just a little tight off or something like that. And they'll they'll think, okay, what can I do? Can I like maybe a little after a spring, a little after air pressure? And they'll make the change. They won't check with me necessarily. Mm-hmm. They'll just make changes on the car mm-hmm. for me. So uh, sometimes they can suggest things in the cockpit. In IndyCar, there was a lot more to work with. We had shock adjusters, track bar adjusters, brake bias. We had various different things we could adjust on, but in um, NASCAR, it was very minimal. It really didn't have a lot of things that we could adjust. So they would do that on a pit stop. So they would change springs, tire pressure, and things like that on the pit stop. And you must have to obviously have a great relationship with these people that you're talking to so they can kind of like, you know each other, right? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So that it's like, oh, when when Danica says this, I need to do this for her. Oh, sure, just like you learn people, you learn people, you learn, you know, I'm going in, I'm at this new gym <clears throat> for the last um, few months. And one of the things they ask in the gym is like, okay, on a scale from one to 10, like how hard was that? One being uh, super easy, obviously 10 the hardest. And so everybody has a different read. Mm. So mine is like eh, seven, you know, but like, you know, like the eh is my answer, right? And then I give kind of a number, like, I, or I'll be like, I'm like I don't know, six, you know? <laughs> like, how many more could you do? I don't know, 10, you know? I, I mean, like, there's a, there's numbers, right. but there's more my body language, my voice, my reaction. So you learn people, right? Like, I could not give a number to my trainer now, and he would know what it meant. Mm-hmm. And so you really learn each other. And it's the same thing with relationships, with um, coworkers, and with engineer and driver. You learn each other and you learn what the reactions mean. And, and when I say the car is tight, like, or I say the car is understeer, they're different languages and different sports in IndyCar and NASCAR. But if the car is not turning, they know the way that I say it, probably how bad it is, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, and we still use number systems, but, but you really learn each other, yeah. So you kick off this stock car thing, uh, Samstown 300, the Ford 300, you end up 43rd overall after only 13 starts, which is like. Oh, oh yeah, because uh, I didn't run the full series. Yeah, um, you you end up doing some acting this year where you are, you're in CSI New York, and it's a real stretch of a role because you play a race car driver that's suspected of murder. <laughs> I love it. Everywhere I went, like I'd go on to like talk shows, and they'd be like, "We're going to do a go kart race around the sh- around the set," and I was like, "Cool." Okay. <laughs> uh, you did your own voice on Simpsons and South Park, so again, there's still a lot of mania going on. Actually, the the Simpsons I did, I recorded it in Iowa. I remember I was racing in Iowa at Iowa Speedway and we had to go into some sound studio in like, you know, Des Moines or something. And I recorded for the Simpsons, but the South Park one just came out. Oh, okay. They never never tell you either. Uh. They came out a very similar time. So I knew about the Simpsons and I recorded for that one, but the, the South Park one just happens. Do you watch South Park at all? I, I like it. I've seen yeah, a bunch yeah. of episodes. I don't, yeah, I'm don't. Yeah. i not like one of those, I'm not turning it on at night when there's nothing else on, but yeah. I've totally watched tons of episodes. Those guys are freaking brilliant. They are brilliant, aren't they? Yeah, and they get away with murder. <laughs> they get away with it's just, unreal, it's, it's, right? it's amazing. What do you think about like the Simpsons too? Like I feel like if anyone dips into conspiracy theories at all, you'll see that it, like there's so <laughs> many clips of like the Simpsons told yeah. the future. Yeah. Isn't the that Simpsons creepy and interesting? 
2000 and whatever they're talking about stuff you're like yo i mean it's weird isn't it (laughs) it's like an interdimensional show that's like not running a timeline that we're not a linear timeline or something yeah yeah um but you're still now 2011 you're still doing indie um yeah 12th in st petersburg you had a couple collisions but you still came in 12th fifth in milwaukee this is when we already talked about this earlier, but this is when uh, Dan Weldon got killed at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. The last one of the season. Yeah, just yeah, that freaking was, nightmare. You know, um, it was a. It was also there was a there was a big bounty on the race. The promoter Randy Bernard was running it at that point in time. He was a PBR guy. He like would run PBR, and so he came over to run IndyCar. Super nice guy, but a promoter, mm-hmm. and he had taken out a big insurance claim on some on whoever, and it was on it was for Dan to win the race. And I think it was like he started in the very back, and if he won, he won like five million dollars or something like that. And actually, Dan was going to take my seat and drive the GoDaddy car. Uh, Andretti. Mm-hmm. So, um, no, hang on, sorry. Yeah, he was coming back. He had run for Ganassi, and then he went, and then he went to a different team, John Barnes's team, and then he was coming back, and he was gonna, he was gonna drive the GoDaddy car. Um, and uh, and so there was a lot on the line, like for him to go win the race. I mean, five million dollars is yeah. a lot of money. What does that mean? A bounty on him? It's I don't know. That's how they described it. it. Like, or not a bounty, but it would have been a. Um, I feel like they used that word, but there was an insurance policy taken out. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, Bonnie probably is the wrong. I just for some reason I feel like I remember that word. So for some the reason, insurance policy is so the insurance for him policy to win. Yeah, it's well, it's it's because the insurance money that they paid to get this. So basically. Um, you know, they if he won, it was five million dollars, and instead of paying the five million dollars, this insurance company they used, and so he just had to pay like a fee. So I don't remember what it was, a few hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars, and that was enough. So basically, it was an eight hundred thousand dollar promotion. So if they won, the 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 insurance paid the five million dollars. So IndyCar didn't end up having to pay the five million dollars. It would have been this sort of someone that was hedging their bets that it wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. So they took the eight hundred grand or whatever it ended up being to to get this uh, to get this. Um, paid if it, if he did win um so anyways there's a lot on the line and it's lap 11 and chaos breaks out and and honestly there was just so many drivers that were not oval respectful they were like europeans and different people like drivers that just didn't get it and didn't have the right amount of respect and were just doing a lot of stupid things and stupid things is what cutting into people's wind yeah totally cutting them off air wise chopping swerving like swerving is so dumb. Like honestly, you're you're open run, running an open wheel car, and you know it's just not smart. So, so climb ex- wheels pretty easily. Explain swerving. So swerving. swerving. So like you know if there's a car next to you and you like swerve into them, just literally swerving into them. That's so dumb. What do you get out of it? There was some thought about like side, like a little bit of like the wind next to the car would kind of help you, uh-huh. and that's more of a stock car thing aerodynamically, but. Um, and I think also just to intimidate. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Jack, well, as you mentioned earlier, you guys kind of, uh, that, that race got abandoned because there was such a bad accident. Yeah, Dan uh, died. Yeah. yeah, Dan died. Yep. And you end up that season 10th overall, but now you're, now you're into NASCAR. Now I'm gone. Yeah. Yep. 15th at Daytona, 12th in Phoenix, 10th at the Subway Jalapeno Open. You end up 26th overall. And, and then it's full on 2012, it's full on NASCAR. 2012 full on NASCAR, yep. I mean, I done, so I did, in two, so in 2010 and 11, I did 
10, I was legally allowed to do um, one NASCAR race a month. Uh, as long as it wasn't in conflict with my IndyCar schedule. So we didn't race every year, every weekend in IndyCar, and NASCAR basically raced every weekend. So every month I could race all the way up until the IndyCar season started. And then once IndyCar season was over, I could race all the races in NASCAR. But in the season, I could only do one a month. So I raced a ton. I raced all basically every week. I did 30 races, I think. And again, um, that seems crazy going from car to car to car to car. Right? Yeah. That seems yeah. crazy. Yeah, it was a little crazy. Seems yeah. like you would mess something up. Are, the, all, are all the you know controls the same? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, I went from a I went from paddle shifting to an H pattern. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> Rolled back the clocks a few decades. Luckily, you're so good. Well, that it was just no factor. And I think too, sometimes it's like you know when you jump into a certain situation that you've been in before, you have like a you have a you know like a constellation of muscle memory for that environment, right? Uh, like you okay. have like all the systems are ready in place. It's uh, it's it was harder when I did full time NASCAR. Like in 2012, I was racing full time nationwide, which was the series below, and I did ten Cup races to prepare me for the 2013 season where I did full-time cup. And so it was harder to go from the cup car to the nationwide car because they were so similar mm. than it was to go from an Indy car to a stock car. Better to have something that's radically different. Yeah, exactly. You're not getting confused on the little right. things. It seemed like to me, when I like looked at your history of 2012, Daytona 500 crash, uh, hit a wall at Eldora Speedway, Bristol Motor Speedway crash, Hollywood Casino 400 crash. Seemed like a rough introduction to NASCAR. Dude, it was a little bit. And some some of it was my fault. Some of it was not my fault. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I feel like on, at Auto Club, um, I remember I got I got absolutely taken out. There's got, I mean, I know there's footage of this. The car, I was driving down the back straightaway and I was on the inside and the car on the right of me just literally turned just, my right rear, just hooked me. Just cra literally crashed me. Like, there's just not much you can do about that. There's, uh, how much of that happens because they're pissed at you or you're pissed at someone else? There's a little, there's a lot of, a lot in NASCAR. It's kind of like, it's got a very good old boy feel. Like, they're like, you know, you're not coming in here. Even if you're a guy, like, you know, there are some F1 drivers or IndyCar drivers or, or stock or even sports car racers that are like road course experts, let's mm. say. And they'll come in and like the rest of the field will be like, oh, no, you, no, no, you're not. Oh no, you're Ain't not. Happening. No, you know you're not. <laughs> and so they're they're not just gonna let you come in and just uh, rain all over their parade. Right. Cause you and so in. now I'm a girl too. Right. And look, I didn't like I didn't Indy. like being and I'm coming from India. I'm yeah. an IndyCar car driver. I'm a girl. I'm like coming in and I have all the media attention. Oh. And they they just like I'm just a triple hate girl. Like, <laughs> triple hate, not triple threat. Triple hate. <laughs> <laughs> So then 2013, I don't blame though. them, to be honest. Can you? I can't. I didn't like being beat by a girl. I didn't like to, you know, like I can't really blame them. Mm -hmm. It's all right. Well, everything can, is such a, there's such a, there's such a balance with everything. I can fully understand someone comes in from a different category, mm -hmm. like in jujitsu. Like when a wrestler goes against a jujitsu guy, all the jujitsu guys are like, want that wrestler to lose. But when that wrestler goes against a boxer, all the grapplers, including the jujitsu people, are all together yeah. wanting you know that person to beat the striker. So yeah, yeah, I can see where if you're coming in from IndyCar and they're like, oh, these yuppie indie IndyCar, IndyCar wine snobs. and cheese people. Right. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I was the, I was just doing an appearance uh, uh, for a company, and 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 the he asked me to describe all the different series, and I was like. 
You know, oh, IndyCar go. was wine and okay. IndyCar is like wine and cheese. You know, right. it's sophisticated, but you know, it's nice. And you're you truly did have wine and cheese at night sometimes. Like For there'd real. be like a chef. You know, like one of the cooks would be making something. There'd be like a little wine party mm. and and um, and then go to um, NASCAR and it would it was like beer and guns. 100%. You know, and just like good old boys and hanging out and you know they're the ones that are going shooting guns at the end of the night after drinking you know not at the racetrack but i'm just like sort of painting you a picture um but they're wild and crazy and fun and you know they're much more relaxed and uh and then you go to f1 and f1 is like champagne and caviar oh it's just it, and there level. literally is champagne and caviar and lobster and you know my friend went to the austin race and she did the whole big like fifteen thousand dollars a ticket for the paddock club and she was entertaining some important guests and so there's four of them and and they like she's like you roll up and they literally have ferrari champagne pouring you as you walk in and there's lobster and everything you could want Mm -hmm. and so formula one is very very champagne and caviar and so it's uh, and it's very 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 be perfect you know and like you know the hospitalities have michelin star chefs and Mm -hmm. if you get your glass of wine you better believe that suckers in like a fancy riddell glass you know that's not it's not you're not getting a solo cup is this reflected in how much it costs to run the teams? For sure. Yeah. Um, like F1 I, although I will say NASCAR is expensive mm-hmm. because there's so many races um, and because they could drive so much, they could probably get it because it was so popular for a while. But, um, but F1 is uber expensive. It costs a couple hundred million dollars to run a car or a team. To, to run a team. Yeah, a couple hundred million. The budget is one hundred and forty-three million, but that's not the budget budget. That's just like the the there's certain line items that they can audit and and keep within that budget. But then of course there's loopholes always. Like how can we allocate this to a different in a different way that is outside of the budget? Mm-hmm. And just whoever does the best job of that, because as my dad taught me when I was young, speed costs money. How fast do you want to go? That's what it boils down to. I mean, it's I, the same. I mean, it would be the same thing. I would imagine for like equipment, whether you're talking about knives or guns or trucks or helicopters. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, the best stuff is better. Yep, yeah, and it it's costs more expensive. It's the way it works. Yeah. Check. <laughs> so we go from. So you went from sh- what wine and cheese to beer and to guns. Beer and guns. Yeah. Yo. <laughs> it was fun too. It was really fun. <laughs> uh, so 2013. That's your first like full time, full time doing the full sprint series. Yep. First woman, to, first woman to clinch pole position at the, the Daytona 500. 500. Yep. So again, to me, that when I would read that, I'd be like, "Oh, like you had what it takes, like you could win this stuff." Yeah. Right. Yeah, there was some, and that woman's a little different. Like, just being super honest, that's not a hard track to drive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, um, you know, you still have to do the race, and the race is hard. It's weird. Like, it's actually harder in the straightaways than in the corners because the car's a little lighter, and you're packed up in a huge pack of cars, and so there's a lot of movement and floating around, and and sort of like uh, jockeying for position and like setting things up for the long run and meaning like long-term meaning how am I gonna make my way up there? Like mm-hmm. how do I chess match this? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and there's just a lot, lot, you're really, really tight with all the other cars. So it's constantly on edge. You led for five laps there <clears throat> in that race. You got at eighth place, which is the highest history, highest placing for a woman in history. And you're one of only 14 drivers to lead both in Indy and Daytona laps, you led laps for in yeah. both those. That's my favorite stat, the Indy 500, Daytona 500 leading, because there's just, it's a genderless stat and there's not many, mm-hmm. you know? And there's been a bunch that have done both. Yeah, 14. Yeah. That's not really a bunch. Well, I mean, considering only all the 14 are. that have that led both, so, yeah, yeah. That's you know, in 100 cool. years, so. Um, or well, I guess, how many, how old is NASCAR, 50? 
50 some years. Yeah, something like that. But it seemed like after the Daytona 500, again, it's kind of a rough season after that. Oh, yeah. Dude, my first year in Cup. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I, I Yeah, the Daytona 500 was definitely the st- started off really well with the pole. I was third going into the last lap. And so I, I thought maybe I could win, too. I was like, mm-hmm. all right, how am I going to set this up? And then Dale Jr. pulls out and everybody goes with him because everybody loves Dale Jr. They just it's all on super speedways it's what's behind you that's more important than what's in front of you so in IndyCar you wanted to catch a dr- catch a toe mm-hmm. you wanted to catch that's what you call it mm-hmm. and so what's in front of you matters what's behind you doesn't matter but in stock cars you need people behind you to push you what's in front of you matters a little bit but we don't have there's no wings in stock cars so you're not really it's not really as important you need people behind you pushing you with like their air and energy like their inertia of power will um it, it, it like pushes the air actually so it's uh it's uh you want people behind you that's what creates a lot of speed and so when someone like me pulls out my first full-time year in cup and i don't have any friends the wine and Are cheese girls me? wine and left. cheese girl danica is <laughs> gonna win the first daytona 500 and the first season she races full-time no ma'am uh and so dale jr pulls out and everybody's <laughs> like let's go you know. so anyway i finish eight cold-blooded <laughs> <laughs> kind of cold-blooded uh 2014 you're you you're with the Stuart. i forgot to mention this you're with Stuart haas racing now mm-hmm. um daytona 500 crash that year mm. 20 seconds. Easy to crash at Daytona. It, must, yeah. oh God, it certainly so seems like it. Uh, sixth at Atlanta Motor Speedway. Finished 28th overall in points. How many How many drivers are there total? 43. Okay. So now you're 28th overall in points. 2015, get 21st at the Daytona 500. 7th at the STP 500. 9th at Food City 500. You get fine. <laughs> I enjoyed this. You get fined $50,000 and penalized 25 points for what's called intentional retaliatory crash. So this was a very exciting weekend uh, where uh, there was, it was like later in the year and it was during the chase and this one driver, he's a total ass. The chase is when you've got like people that are and go, gonna make it to so basically, win the series type there's thing? so many races in the season that they had to create some excitement for the fans and some reason to watch at some point and a reset so they do so they started doing stages during the race where there would be a, a there'd be a caution and a and a and a semi checkered flag of like results so the top 10 would get points based on their the top 10 would mm-hmm. get points um and 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 then it'd be a caution and a restart and from where you were and then at the and then as the season went on the last 10 races of the season is called the chase chase for the cup Mm -hmm. and so um the top 16 in points would make it into the chase and so each weekend there would be four eliminated until there was only four left at the last race and then whoever beats who wins so it's very super bowl like where it's Mm -hmm. like the last game is the only thing that matters the last race of course you had to get there so it's not totally Mm -hmm. like that but you know you um you had to you had to beat everybody else in the chase so even if you finish 20th in the race at the last race, but everyone in the other three in the top four of the championship were behind you, you still won. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so the chase came along, and so it was during a chase race, and um, and Logano has pissed off so many people, including me. He is, like, I remember running, like, 10th at, um, you know, uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway, having a good race, and it's, like, halfway through the race, and he just freaking dumps me. He just crashes me going into turn three, and, um, I mean, I absolutely went over to his bus after it was all over with, and I laid the F into him. And, um, and uh, I'd probably cash some checks to my ass couldn't my 
cash and host you wrote some checks wrote some checks my ass couldn't cash thank you um and that would be like i am going to make sure that you don't win this championship and i will take you out and like i was terrible at taking people out i would take myself out which is where the story is going and um (laughs) so uh i didn't have a lot of practice in open wheel cars it's been since go-karting since i worked on that and uh and so this driver, uh, this driver crashed me, and I hit the wall, and I came back out, and I was lapsed down, and um, and I tried to crash him. I also crashed myself again, <laughs> and him a little bit. Um, but uh, this was, I, I, it was not for position. So based on, so that was what I got penalized for. But then also the reason, the big reason is because some, uh, it was um, Matt Kenseth. Um, had been taken out by Joey Logano the week before, and he was leading, and he was going to make it through the next round of the chase, but he got taken out. And and and, and Joey didn't even need to win. He just did it. And so um, so so the next time at Martins, next week at Martinsville, he goes out there, and something happens to Kenseth, and he's like now a lap down. And so he goes out there, and the, the green flag is coming out, and Logano's in the top three somewhere. And he starts the race, and Kenseth, absolutely annihilates him and he completely in the wall like they're both done and um and so kenseth took logano out but it wasn't for position mm-hmm. and so so this was like a very very aggressive retaliation um at the very front of the grid for very big big points for for moving through in the chase in the chase and so um so nascar felt like they had to do something and so since i crashed the one for not a position based on the fact that something so much more dramatic happened. Like my incident was like nothing like that was, we were for, we were for nothing points and nothing positions. Um, but, but at the front of the grid, Matt and Joey. And so they had, they find they like had like a hundred thousand dollar fine. I think, I don't remember was a $70,000 fine or whatever, 60 or whatever and points. And, but anyway, so I got a huge penalty. Um, and, uh, yeah, I remember getting that call. And being told what my penalty was, and I was really sad about it. I'm like, this sucks. And I, I had probation, and I was on probation. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I watched it. It looked very intentional. Oh, yeah. 100%. I was like, oh, that's, she's definitely making that happen. Yeah. Uh, you finished that year, 2015, 24th overall in points. 2016, Daytona 500 crashed, didn't finish. Auto Club 400, you crashed. You also got a $20,000 fine for gesturing <laughs> at I'm the sure other driver. I'm sure I called someone number one. <laughs> um, I believe that was probably when, I bet that was when um, uh, Casey Kane dumped me on the front straightaway, maybe. And you were right. Uh, and I, oh, I almost flipped. Like, he, uh, the, you're going really fast at, at, at um, Auto Club Speedway. It's a two-mile track, so you're Oof. going probably 220. And um, he came down the front straightaway and came onto my right side door and got so close that he turned me in the middle of the straightaway. And it's not even straight. It's actually at a bit of a, it's a, it's a slight turn. Um, and uh, I call it a dog leg. Um, and so it's a very long sweeping dog leg. And so it turned me up into the wall, boom, hit. And yeah, so I'm sure, I mean, yeah, I've, it was either that or there was another time where I flipped someone off for sure, though. I definitely, like, it was at Bristol, I think, mm. somebody took me out. And then I went up to the track and I I gave him the finger. You were not happy. I gave him the number one. <laughs> We've all done it. <laughs> Talladega, you crashed. 11th at Charlotte. This year, 2016, you finished 24th overall in points. 2017, 4th at Advanced Auto Parts Exhibition Race. Mm. Um 
33rd in Daytona, you crashed, but you got 33rd, 10th at Dover, 28th overall that year. And 2017, you announced that you're gonna you're planning to retire from full-time racing. I did at the very last race. So the whole season went by. And what, what happened in 17 was that I had this new sponsor starting in 16. Um, I don't even want to give them credit because then they get attention mm-hmm. and they, they literally just pulled out the next year. And it was before the second year started and it was a three-year contract. And um, and it was some bullshit reason and they said and it really didn't make sense and it didn't have to do with me. It was something about like something that other spo- other of other sponsors on the car. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was just they just didn't want to do it. And it was a lot of money. It was like, I don't know, they were paying thirty million dollars a year or twenty or thirty. And um and so yeah, so I didn't know what was gonna happen when the season started, like, were they gonna tell me I couldn't raise, what was gonna happen, but you know, I had more races sold on my car for the next season because I still had other sponsors. They did most of the races, but not all of them. So I had a bunch of other races still sold for that year and the next year because this is like a three-year chunk contract. Um, and so the plan is set. And um, then other cars on the team had. There was other cars on the team that didn't have as many races sold for the current year we were in, let alone the next year. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. So anyway, I go race and um, some other sponsors step up a little bit. And uh, and uh, and then they announced late in the season that I'm not going to come back to the team. And I just had to go through this process of like, what do I want to do? What do I really want? And at first when this happened, I got this like inertia of like, I don't want to be done. I'm not ready. Like, mm-hmm. holy crap, I was not ready for this. Um, and then I, as the year went on, I just kind of started falling out of love with the atmosphere and what it took. And it was just so grueling and cutthroat. And you just had to be such a dick to be a good, to, to make, to do what you needed to do, whether that was on track or off track, even with just politicking. And mm-hmm. it was just, and I felt like, man, no matter what I did, I just didn't feel like I was getting what I needed and even lobbying didn't help. And I don't, I just didn't love the, the, the team manager for the team I was driving for. I just don't like him. And I don't think he liked me and I don't think he believed in me. Like the first year I was in cup, um, I never got a new car. I had a full, full, full budget. I have paid for other cars in my teams for my whole career. And That's I never you get, you attract massive uh, yep, sponsorships. Exactly. And, and they, and, and, um, and uh, and so I, I didn't get any new cars the first year I drove because apparently Damn. word was like, oh, well, you'll just crash them anyway. And so then I finally get a new car the second year at like, I don't know, 10 races in or something like that. And we go to Kansas and uh, somebody is a total dick to me. And so I go to try and take them out and I take myself out. <laughs> with my first new car and I don't like that I know that I'm probably like justifying this idea but <clears throat> but uh but I I got an How I, much does a NASCAR cost? Uh I don't know. Like when you trash with that car. I don't know. Hundreds of thousands I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. Um 100,000, I don't know. Um and be more than 100,000. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah, I mean I can buy a regular car for 100,000 so. Yeah. Check. All right, so you trash it. So, so you're never it. getting new cars. Well, I finally, I get one at, I get one, um, I, I can't remember exactly the order again, but I'm not sure if it was the very first one, my, uh, the second one I got. But anyway, I go to the track, this track, and I finally get a new car, and I go, and I'm, I end up finishing seventh. I qualify in the top 10. I pass Tony Stewart and Dale Jr. in three and four in the Damn. same end of the, and I, I take third place at one point in the race. And like, I'm like, 
I wish these guys would have given me some more new cars. And so there was a whole big thing with my, my crew chief and I was not didn't think he was putting in the effort. And as the season went on, he seemed to be trying harder. And I was like, look, I'm happy. But in the end, they took him away from me and um, and they gave me a, a worse crew chief and um, one that another driver didn't want. And uh, and so he just was never on my side. And um, and I just didn't like him. I think he was a chauvinist. I think he was just a, I think he was just. I was just a good old boy chauvinist that just didn't like me personally. And uh, and so it made my life at that team not great. And I I just didn't feel like I was getting what I needed to show what I could do. And the only, the, what I really loved, and so going back to the all full circle, back to the very beginning and when I was racing go-karts, I loved the setting a goal and achieving it mm-hmm. and this process. And so if I didn't feel like I had the opportunity to finish better, to have a better season, to accomplish more, for me, there was no more process to have. Like I wanted the Delta. What did I do last year? And what did I do this year? I wanted to get better. I wanted to finish better. And I was not going to be able to drive for a better team than what I was at. Um, Cause they were a pretty good team. And, um, and I, I, I then was going to also have to take a big pay cut. And, and I just didn't, I just was like, I'm not attached. I, I'm not afraid of change. It doesn't mean it's not scary. It's just like I'm willing to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I just hit a point where I just wasn't happy anymore. And I let, I let the universe sort of take over. And I was like, look, if a sponsor comes along and they're wanting to do it and there's a team, like I will race. But if there isn't, then we're just going to, I'm just going to let the universe handle this one. And, um, no sponsor came through and I ended up being like, all right, I'm done. Never mind. My, my dad came to North Carolina and I remember talking to him and telling him like, um, you know, dad, like I don't really love racing. And I actually like never really loved actually racing. Like I loved aspects of racing and I've always felt like so hard for me to say that for the first times. Um, first times meaning like to my dad, to in public, uh, but it wasn't my passion. Like, I think a passion is something you do no matter what. And I don't do it now. Like, I don't go play racing. I don't go like, hey, I don't, you know, people have passions and they do them all the time. And even if it's just for fun. Right. And I just don't. And uh, I loved aspects of it. And now I plug those aspects into other things in my life. And I'm plenty busy, trust me, but they're just doing other things. And it wasn't racing. Racing was just the medium. And so, uh, so I was just ready. I was just like, all right, it's time to be done. And um, yeah, so then I, I announced at the end of 2017 at the last race that I was gonna be done racing full time and that I was gonna finish my career doing the um, doing the Indy 500 and the Daytona 500. So the Daytona 500 is February. The Danica Double. It's called the Danica Double because there's something in racing called the double mm-hmm. and the double was where you do the Indy 500 and the Coke 600 the same day. Indy 500's midday Damn. and Coke 600's at night, so that's 1,100 miles. and. I actually wanted to do it. I thought it'd be kind of cool and interesting. And so the first year I didn't because it was kind of the first year in NASCAR. And then the second year I was like, all right, let's try and do this. And this jerk of a of a team manager that I talked about, mm-hmm. he told me if you if you do this, everybody's going to question your how serious you are. And I was like, okay. So I didn't do it. Yeah. And um, and so I. Uh, and and so I, I I did what what I call the Danica double, which is just because it represented you know the bulk of my career being in these two sports. Do, are those the only two races you raced in 2018? Yes. And your sponsors or people were just like, "Yo, for this hype situation we're in." Yeah. So for for the first time, the sponsors were actually mine. So I went and got the sponsors and negotiated with the teams. Got it. So um, so I I had I had GoDaddy came back on board. They were off my car for a few years, but they came back on for these last two, and um, 
and some others, and we, we went racing. You made it happen. And the Daytona 500, you crashed. Oh, yeah. I crashed both of them. <laughs> crashed both those races. That, yeah. You want to talk about the universe. Like, uh, it's time like, to be done. Yeah, they're like, yeah, you're, yeah, you're done. Yeah, you're really done. <laughs> you're done early. Uh, that was, that's like a uh, bummer. You're but, done early. You know, it is what it is. Sorry, um, let, me, let me crack a, let yeah, me crack all a good. go. All good. All right, so in the meantime, you wrote another book. <laughs> the other book is called Pretty Intense. <laughs> this is a really good play on words. You know, the, <laughs> the Pretty Intense thing. And the book really is about, well, the subtitle is The 90-Day Mind, Body, and Food Plan That Will Absolutely Change Your Life by you. Um, a book, clearly, it's broken into three different sections. And this book is kind of like how you live your life. And actually, totally. I, we met at the CrossFit Games. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so This is when I was in the throes of CrossFit when I wrote this. Throes of CrossFit. Um, and just cool information. Like you start off in the mind part. I'm going to read mm-hmm. a couple of rules. Three rules of happiness. N- rule number one, flow in the right direction. Remember your thoughts are extremely powerful. You talk about that. Be light, be positive. Keep your mind river flowing in the right direction. Rule number two, start by assuming the best. I try to see the good in people and move through my day with the expectation that pretty much everyone is doing their best. It's a very positive attitude. Rule number three, do the next healthy thing. You don't have to master these skills all at once. You don't have to completely change your outlook on life in an instant. Just do the next healthy thing. That's a, what I like about that. There's a thing they say, I didn't really have this attitude, but going through SEAL training, it was like, just make it to the next evolution. Mm, like, yeah. just make it, like whatever you're doing right now, surf torture, push-ups, freaking squats, boat carries, log PT, whatever you're doing, just, just make it, just do this thing. So this attitude of like, just do the next, don't think about you gotta eat healthy for the next year, Echo mm. Charles. Yes, sir. Just think about the next healthy thing. The next meal. Yeah. Like, what are you going to have for dinner? And there you go. So pretty cool. You, and you got to look. I'm like going to c- completely summarize uh, some of these sections. Not going to read them all. But that's the type of thing that you talk about in this book. Kind of what your mindset is. Because the mind sets up the rest. Yep. Yep. Um, so it's the first part. You go into this here. When we get into the body part. You say, a decade ago, I was exercising a lot, but I wasn't particularly happy with the way I looked. I was running 30 to 45 minutes every single day and doing yoga a couple times a week, but I didn't look like I spent a ton ton of time working out. I had a small frame, but no muscle definition. I was 95 pounds and didn't look that great. Now I weigh 110 pounds and I look far fitter. Back then, I never really thought about the level of intensity I was putting into my workouts. It was more about how long I went or how far I could go without stopping. Nowadays, the only running I do is short, fast, challenging, all out intervals followed by a short walk recovery repeated 15 to 20 times. Fast forward a little bit. High intensity interval training or HIT is the primary force behind my workouts nowadays. HIT refers to a, a simply to a workout in which you go hard at maximum intensity for a certain amount of time, then back off for a recovery period before going at it hard again. You can do HIT workouts with weights on a bike, in a pool, on a treadmill, basically whatever your favorite type of exercise you can modify to create an interval approach. And you got to look again. This is like good information for people. You go into the 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 good positive things about hit. Hit releases your bliss compound, which is like the Dopam- exercise. Yeah, 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 yeah and, and endorphins. Yep. Uh, hit burns fat faster. Hit builds endurance. You've got definitions around all this stuff. Hit protects you from diabetes. Hit builds muscle and keeps you young. Hit gets the job done faster. Hit makes you happier and less stress. And then hit is just more fun, which is only your opinion. But I have to agree with it. Um, you really have that classic uh, 
what is it? The classic story arc of where you were working out before and you've always been kind of into working out, but what you were doing was like long runs, long treadmill, long exercise bike. And what's interesting about you is, like you said earlier, you were in magazines and being photographed this whole time. Yeah. And you actually put in this book, you've got pictures of what you looked like when you exercised like that. Yep. Which, by the way, you were like 22 years old. <laughs> 19. 19 years old, 20 years old. <laughs> Everybody looks, looks all right at 19. Yeah, right? And That's yet, a little baby. Yeah, and yet you've got pictures of you now. Yeah. And I think most people would be of the opinion that you look fitter and better now than you did then. It's not like you looked yep. bad back then, but... You just fitter. And so you went from this trajectory of people training from, hey, I'm just gonna run and that's kind of a workout. And if I sweated a lot, then then I worked out hard. You got into the mode of like using resistance, yeah. so lifting weights of some kind and then going hard, doing yeah. the high intensity yeah. training. Making it difficult. Like Shh. don't just say you went, right? but like show you went because you did. Huge difference for people to think about if you're a person that's exercising and you're not kind of seeing the results you would hope for, there's a really strong possibility that you're not exercising with the kind of intensity that you need. Yes, at the end of the day, if you aren't exercising with intensity and if you aren't weight training, so weights will always shape the body, right? Like you can change the size of your body with cardio and movement like, but you're not going to change the shape of your body. And when you're looking at a picture, it's one thing in person, there's a little bit more, you can see in 3D what's going on, but if you're looking at a picture, what translates is shape. And so muscles are going to give you shape. And they also translate to leanness because, yes, you do need some level of leanness to be able to see muscle, but, um, but they give you shape. And, um, and so the only, I'd say the only thing I'd add to this book, because this book I wrote in 2017, 16, um, 16, 17, and, um, and it came out the beginning of 2018, uh, is that you know, you can't go hard all the time. Mm -hmm. And I did not know that. And so when you can only pull a lever so many times mm -hmm. and the body is incredible at dealing with the, sh the things that we put it through, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure you know very well. Indeed. Um, but it does take a toll. So I've learned since then how important, because I went through a pretty big health journey in the last few years of, um, well, we can get in as much or as little as you want, but it, it really took my body away from that and I gained weight and I looked different and I was like, what's going on? So what was going on? Uh, I One of the things is I w did too much. I worked mm -hmm. out too much. I, I would work out. Sometimes I'd go to CrossFit for like two hours. I'd do a class and I'd be like, hey, what do you want to do? What else do you want to do? And we just do a whole other workout. Mm -hmm. um, so, so much intensity, which is cortisol, and which spikes your cortisol. And then cortisol will dump the blood sugar uh, from your muscles into your bloodstream. And so then you get into more of like storage because you're, you're using what's readily available instead of what's stored and because it's getting dumped into the bloodstream. And so there's just so much down, trickle down effect that happens when you just are only doing hard stuff all the time. Also recovery. So I would just like, I didn't know what it was like to not be sore. You know, I'd just always be like taxed. Mm -hmm. And so then your body's in a state of inflammation. So that's hard on the hormones. Um, then my diet was not ideal, meaning I was super good at it. Like I was very disciplined, but there's only so long that you can have a certain way of eating and restrict yourself. So I ate paleo forever. And, um, and so I didn't eat beans and grains and, you know, 
carbohydrates really um, other than starches like uh, sweet potatoes and mm-hmm. some squashes and stuff and berries and fruit. But um, but I was probably too restrictive in that way and just like not nourishing the body and, and giving it what it needed totally. Uh, and then I had breast implants. So I that was one of the vanity things that I did for myself as a girl back when I was like 32 mm-hmm. and so 33. And um, I had them for seven and a half years and I got them out a year and a half ago. And so those things are toxic. So those things did had I ho- had horrible gut health. Um, I started like my hair wasn't growing anymore. Um, I mean, you can see in some of these pictures, I used to have super long hair. It just wasn't healthy anymore. So I cut it short. So I was like, well, maybe it's just age. And um, so it's finally growing out a little bit. Um, but it's uh, but my hair wasn't as healthy. Gut issues. I had super high heavy metals, some mold. Um, all my hormones were tanked all of them, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, everything. Um, My cortisol spike was in the middle of the night instead of in the morning when I woke up, so it was kind of flip-flopped. So my adrenal function was totally totally screwed up. Um, And so I just, it took a couple years to get things back. And like, it's honestly finally the first time that I'm back where I was like back then, when those photos, back in 2017. Mm -hmm. Like it's been a long journey. Damn, that like, sounds like a, yeah. a rough one. Six, seven years of like trailing off, like gaining weight, not knowing why. It's like it's one thing when you gain like a few pounds. You're like, oh, well, okay. But then like, I mean, I probably went honestly from like 110 pounds. I mean, I weighed like 107 in these photos. Mm-hmm. Like that's, and so, but from 110 pounds to probably like 125, which is a lot on someone like me. And to not have any way to fix it. Like I couldn't eat less. I couldn't work out more. Nothing worked. And uh, my body was just in a total shutdown mode of like, we, we, we're, 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 we're not, we're not, we're not showing up for you anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took a lot of time like loving, l- loving, not loving myself metaphorically, but like being kind to my body, mm-hmm. like doing a workout and then having a recovery day. I used to take no rest days. Like it's in the book to not take a rest day mm-hmm. because I said they happen naturally. And they Wait. did. They did happen naturally for me, but like you Uh-oh. can't. Red flags over here for Jocko because that's the same thing I say. I'm like, oh, you're going to get rest days, you know, like when you travel or when exactly, the water yeah. heater breaks. Yeah, but when you get sick that one day yeah, or like, you know, you, you just like you have to. And that's what I would do. I would, the rest days, they were a little bit more built in for me because I would go race every mm-hmm. weekend. So like. You know, so they were a little bit more built in, but I just it was like, take no rest days. I didn't do cheat meals either because I'm like, what? Well, I don't need that food. I don't crave a pizza. Mm-hmm. I don't crave feeling bad because that's exactly what it made me do. But the, one of the problems was, is that my gut health was so bad that if I did eat anything off the menu, it really did make me feel bad. Now I know I don't have that anymore and I can eat whatever I want. And I don't choose to eat whatever I want. But if I do, I used to literally take a bite of something that was not on the paleo menu and it would make me have, I would be bloated and uncomfortable. Now it doesn't do that to me. So it's like nice to be able to just like function and just be able to, oh yeah, I'll have a bite of that. Oh, that's nice. Okay, fine. So so what did, what change did you make diet wise? Um, I just went away from, uh, I just started eating like complex carbohydrates again. So I started eating rice and oatmeal and um, things like that. I still... Still don't eat gluten on purpose, but if I do, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It doesn't bother me. I just, it's not in my favorite foods anyway, so I don't love pasta. It's not my favorite. And I mean, pizza, I don't really care. I don't really get that that often. I mean, I like it. It's fine, but it's pretty, not very um, nutritious. So. And then what's the rest protocol looking like? I literally only lift three days a week. That's it. And I walk other than that. Mm-hmm. That's it. I lift three days a week. 
Echo Charles is a huge proponent of rest and rest days. Where were you mm-hmm. when I needed that info? You know, I was around. Probably resting. Well, look at you. You're jacked. So clearly you know what to do. Resting does work. Resting does work. It look does at the, look at Echo's. He rests those biceps on I a I mean, look at you're wearing your muscles on the outside of your skin. <laughs> They're so big. That's the byproduct right there. You know, byproduct. Yeah. Did you learn the hard way? No. Oh. Um, I was well, fine then. I always had rest programmed into the thing. I was a personal trainer at one point in my long life. So you didn't mm-hmm. have. So you you did it on faith, or you did it on evidence of your results, or like because yeah. if you love fitness, it's so easy to take fitness oh, yeah. to the extreme. <laughs> yeah, and still we'll do, I'll do that too sometimes. Still, mm-hmm. where you know I do the no rest days and yeah. oh I feel good or whatever until the day comes. You're like wait I had like a few days in a row where my yeah. workouts are like shitty. Then I'm like oh wait I'm not gonna, and then I just won't. But no the the programming that I kind of you know there's all kinds of approaches to exercise even just resistance training alone. There's so many protocols yeah. and they all work if you do them correctly so the one that i kind of stumbled upon early on had rest programmed in and they explained really specifically why you need to rest this much at this time and stuff like that so you were convinced the literature convinced you. oh yeah and the program was so freaking effective at the at the time Mm -hmm. yeah it still is by the way but um it (laughs) is this big beyond belief big beyond belief leo costa jr hell yeah. yeah but it's a you know it's one of those deals where it's like hey these three protocols right here like the the exercise what you do in the gym what you do out and the two outside of the gym which is what you eat and then how much you rest like you have to do all three otherwise the whole table collapses yeah protein is also very important i forgot i took a little detour with protein um i watched what the health at the end of 2017 and i was like oh "Oh, shoot maybe i shouldn't eat meat anymore and then i went through this i went through this mental game of like maybe protein is like propaganda and Uh. maybe we don't and yeah. so then I stopped eating meat meat. I'd only eat fish at night pretty much. And I was mm. eating like substitutes of things and protein powders and pea protein, which mm. pea protein is laden with heavy metals because it's in plants. And mm. so, um, and so I had fake eggs, you know, and I was like, oh, it was, and so, so then I, so that's another thing. So then How I wasn't eating protein for years, years. Oh yeah. I had a friend and you know, a friend that I lives on another, lives on the other coast and I'd see him occasionally and his, uh, wife was like vegan and so he became vegan and i saw him and he looked like terrible he probably looked gone i felt horrible when i saw him i thought he he said he he came to my house he's like i have to talk to you and i was like oh god he's got like cancer or something yeah and it turns out that him and his wife were having some issues and that's what he wanted to talk to me about but when he said that to me i'm like oh this is like i'm about to lose my friend he's and it wasn't that at all you know he was he he was going through a hard time with his wife, but we, I was like, dude, we're going out. Like, let's go fill me in. And he starts talking to me and he's like, well, you know, I've been vegan. I was like, bro, we're going to get steak like yeah, right now. Exactly. We're going to get steak right now. Oh. I go, you look just like terrible, bro. This is not good. And sure enough, it's like one of those things like you do that to your body. You take that protein away. Totally. I mean, so th- look at all the, the stack of this. Too much yeah. working out, not enough protein, stress. I was in a stressful relationship. I had retired from racing. Like there was just so many things crashing down that my body went bye-bye. Mm-hmm. So um, so rest is something that I have. I would have to add as an amendment to this because, and just like, you know, having some variation. But, but basically lift weights, have rest, eat enough protein, mm-hmm. and you and, and be in a calorie deficit if you want to lose weight. Like, that's it. It's really, it's not gonna, it's it's what it is. I also had someone trying to convince me that calories didn't matter if your blood sugar didn't spike because that's the mechanism. And I'm like, so, you know, I, I like try everything. Yeah. 
yeah. but I, I tried everything in the health department. Like I did peptides, I did um, Ebu treatments, which I really loved, just like a blood dialysis. I did, um, I did uh, NAD. I don't know if you tried NAD. Yeah, yeah. I did a bunch of NAD. Uh, I did, I did enemas. I did coffee enemas as well as like suppositories. Damn. I did. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I tried everything, everything, including like taking 40 pills a day and expensive yeah. urine basically is what that makes. Mm. Um, elimination diets from foods based on what, what my, my food sensitivity test showed. Uh, I, I went to the, I did lymphatic massages. I did, I, you name it, like I did it was exhausting and it took so much time and it took so much money and I know that I don't, I have so many more resources in that right. department and I know so many more people. But what I said the whole time, everybody was like, you're just also getting older. I'm 41 now. Mm. And, uh, and they were like, you know, you're 39 or you're 40 and like that's just you know, what happens. And you know what I said? Screw Fuck you. that. Yeah. That's not how it's going down. There I is no reason why I can't look the way I want to look, feel the way I want to feel. I'm not buying it. I'm living till 120, and this is not how it's going for me. Mm -hmm. And guess what? I look like I did when I was in this book. Yeah, you do. Freaking outstanding. Um, now, you get you, this book comes out. What else? You got all kinds of crazy things going on right now. <laughs> you got uh, a wine company. You make wine. I do. I do. I love wine. I went to I went to Napa Valley back in 2006 on a vacation and um, I uh, was standing I so the trip started off with uh, going to French Laundry which is a super fancy restaurant with the tasting menu and Oh yeah that's where Gavin Newsom went that's during right. the lockdown. Yeah cuz that's he got, he got in a lot of trouble for that one. Yeah exactly. He didn't go to a restaurant, he went to the best restaurant and um, he was maskless and you know you gotta practice what you preach, man. Especially, I mean, what do you expect when you go to a public place and you're not following the rules? Like, you know what that shows? Is that he's never following the rules, yeah. right? Because when someone like gets caught in, an, in a situation where you're like, duh. Like, that means they're doing it all the time and they're not getting caught, so they just think they're not gonna get caught. It's like when people cheat, you know, and they get away with it and they're like, oh, and then they just start getting sloppy because they think they're never gonna get caught. And then you're like, dude, what, what, how did you, how, how many more women? You know, like, <laughs> these guys, I mean, girls can do it too. I'm not just, uh, um, but um, so I went to French Laundry uh, for dinner and then there was a wine tasting set up for 10 a.m. the next day. And I thought, oh my God, how am I going to do that? Like, I'll be just so not feeling good from dinner because it's going to be 20 courses and so much wine. And, and I didn't. And it's a much more sophisticated experience mm -hmm. than that. So go up to the, to it was Quintessa, went up to um, the top of this property on like one of their trucks and got out and there's wine, rose petals leading out to the end of the knoll with a picnic table and quiches and fruit and wine <laughs> and everything. And I'm <laughs> swirling my white wine at 10 a.m., which is 100% acceptable in Napa Valley. And I just remember standing there going, man, It'd be really cool to have something like this someday. And I thought to myself, but I don't have $50 million yet. And so I was like, I thought it cost $50 million. I just made up a number. And I thought, and I also knew was yet was able to be put on the end of this. Cause I'm again, only like 25. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
And so uh, the, and that was the scene. Canadian to that time frame. It was. I was in it. It was in yeah. it. It was 2006. So it was just, you know, a year and a half after it got, got really going. And I thought that uh, it was just an idea. So this is a total example of thoughts become things and how important it is um, to, you know, think about what, you know, what you're, what's going through your head and know what you want. Like, and think about what you actually want because this was a seed idea. Mm-hmm. Literally said in my own inner monologue, this would be really cool. And then, um, and, uh, and then two years later, went back out there on a trip and the winemaker at Quintessa was now working for some other people. He's like, oh, you come back to the valley, let me know. So I did and went up and visited him and also went and saw some properties. Like, oh, I wonder what it's like. How expensive is it? No, let's check out Sonoma. Maybe that's the right area. And I'm like, nope, Napa Valley. Came back over, found something I liked and ended up buying it at the beginning of 2009 and um, sort of working on planting the vineyard and it started from dirt. And so it starts from scratch. So I didn't need $50 million, but um, I did need some millions. And you know, you start by buying the property and then you plant it. And I finally had a bottle of uh, wine for sale in 2017. So, you know, it's a long game process and I'm still in the hole and I'm still, I still have to put money into it, but um, it's totally a passion project. And I, and I, and, and really all of my companies outside of racing. So what I loved and like, so really revered and like respected about what I was able to do in racing was that just being out there was enough for people like just being out there was inspiring to people and it was never enough for me I don't know I'm curious actually when you hear when you hear athletes saying things like I'm just honored to be here do you, does that resonate with you like oh I'm at the Olympics I'm just just honored to be here meaning I'm not here to win. I'm just happy to be. Well, that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. It doesn't really resonate. With it doesn't resonate much. at all with me. Like the only way it would resonate, resonate with me is like, um, if I was making sure I was mentally staying humble and being like, Hey, I'm, I'm, it's an honor to be here representing the United States of America. And I'm going to pour everything I can into this competition. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I could understand. Okay. Yeah. But just being like, yo, I'm just happy. <laughs> and maybe it's my own like triggers seeing it as like, cause I have so much of like wanting more and look, clearly it didn't result in me winning all the time. I didn't win all the time, but I had that level of drive. And so I don't know if I would have accomplished what I, what I did if I didn't have the level of drive that I couldn't even relate to someone even if they were just putting sort of like a nice, humble answer together. Like I was so much more like, I have to go out there and I have to do it. Um, so I wonder, would I, had a, would I have had a, a worse, a, a less successful career if I wouldn't have thought the way I thought? I'm not sure. Would it have been better? I don't know. I can't do it over. So um, so I, I just can't relate to that. And so everything I want to do, I want to do at a really high level. And um, and so I, uh, so anyway, so I start this winery and I do, do it with the best. I'm doing it with... Um, you know, the wine pick makers picking the property and the, you know, the winemakers picking the grapes and the farmers. And so we make great wine. And it's doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it still costs money and, but it makes yeah. money, but you know, it's like things also cost money and then you have to take, it takes money to make money. Mm-hmm. So and then it's like open up the tasting room in Calistoga and then we need this new equipment and then, Oh, a fire came through your property. Now that's expensive too. And so how often do you go up there and just chill? Um, I don't, not that often. Um, I go up there a couple times a year, uh-huh. but I also do a lot of events outside of it. So, um, but yeah, it's just, I mean, it's just, it's just thoughts become things. And it was just this idea of like, and that's why the name of the wine is called Somnium, which is a Latin word that just means to dream. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have ideas 
Well, I shouldn't ask you this question. I should just say sometimes I have ideas and they're dumb. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> definitely. I'm like, I'm glad I didn't do that thing because it wouldn't have been smart. I have so many ideas. Like we started and I was like, guys, my first idea, my idea for a new company being like to do a driving school, yeah. but like a school for like driving license, not like racing license <laughs> and teach 16 year olds how to drive so that we can have a new generation of better drivers because the curriculum that's 70 years old can't. No. It needs an, and must need an update. And it definitely wasn't written by a race car driver, I'm sure. So if I drive well on the road, well is, I suppose, up for negotiation because I don't follow the rules. But the rules are just a little tame for me. So um, and I can do that. And I have a large comfort zone because I have a good experience. So I'm like, maybe I should do a driving school. But I have tons of ideas. And mm -hmm. I will that ever come to fruition? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my idea that I didn't even say out loud came to fruition and started, you know, started a winery from scratch so thoughts become things you have to be careful of what it is that you're putting your mind on i, I my mind my manifestation of things goes really fast what if i you, want a house i look i'm like oh i want a house and then i'll just buy a house like within a year i'm like oh shoot that happened really fast what made you decide because you have your own podcast yes what made you decide to start that i like talking to people and i like asking questions and i like learning about people and um i realized that my uh, empathy is in the form of understanding so I'm not one of these people that like feels your feelings. I'm not like crying when you're crying. And um, I have a lot of empathy for dogs and animals. That's, that's where mine lies. <laughs> um, like I can literally see a dog suffering in a video and I start crying or I'll just swipe. I can't even watch it, you know? Uh, but humans, I'm like, eh. Yeah. Suck it up. <laughs> it's it right. I know. I had an expression that I said for years, which is try harder. <laughs> Literally, try harder. Everyone knew it. And yeah. I try harder is also why I had to tell you the health story, by the way. Um, so, uh, or the health journey. Um, but I, I, yeah. So you, I, I'm a hard charger. And uh, I was listening to your podcast. And one of the things you did, you were talking about doing like ayahuasca. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've done that. Yeah, yeah. What was yeah. that all about? Um, well, I'm very curious about the um, mystical world. I love being in the mystery. So I don't buy it all. I don't think that it's all true necessarily. Um, but I'm very curious. Like even when I, way back when I, um, it's when I got married, I became a Catholic. And so I went to Catholic classes mm -hmm. I get that word a little messed up sometimes um, but I I was always such a skeptic I would question everything like one of them was like why do we not eat meat on Fridays during Lent if you're gonna do it why are you doing it mm -hmm. and I was like oh because it's a, it was a luxury back then I'm like oh well then so I just pick something that's a luxury because it's not me I mean, it's not a luxury that's like normal now um, so I'm like I want to know why mm -hmm. so my like understanding is really important so I uh, so yeah so I love to understand people and so I ask a lot of questions and it can read off in not a podcast setting in a regular life setting like if you're telling me about something going on I'm like oh and then I just dive into it and I I'm not really like hearing you out and just sort of holding the space to listen mm -hmm. I start asking questions you might think I'm actually like doubting you or questioning you or like 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 not buying it or or just not not feel not very sensitive to you and maybe you even get defensive but that's how I that's how I understand you it's how I can relate it's how I it's just it's just my my empathy language is You're understanding. intensely curious. Intensely curious. Yeah, I love to get layers and layers deeper. So, you know, ayahuasca is one of those things that gives you access to these other spaces that 
are, 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 are to learn, like to learn. I love to learn about myself too. And um, sometimes doing podcast, actually anytime I do interviews, I learn about myself because I'm willing to process out loud. Um, so I, 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 I really just love to learn about myself. So I, I yeah, planned a trip and, and um, yeah, it was back. I mean, Aaron has talked about it. This is when I was with Aaron mm-hmm. and um, he talked about it on Aubrey Marcus's podcast and, um, and it was my Christmas present to him. And what did you see? Uh, it didn't work out for me. <laughs> I don't know. It, 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 it worked out all in the end because uh, we um, it went and uh, we went in March of 2020, uh-huh. and um, there was a trip was supposed to be like four or five days in Machu Picchu, and then and and in Peru. Also, oh, right, right, right as COVID kicked off, literally. Uh, well, this is the story. And then the, the second half of the trip was supposed to go to Patagonia and like have a relaxing part of the trip. And um, then all the stuff with COVID was kind of coming along and there was another couple with us and they have children. And so um, they were a little bit more like up on what was going on in the world. And I'm very Pollyanna when it comes to how everything's gonna work out. I totally think everything's gonna work out. I don't know where I got that, but I do. And um, I was like, it's fine, it's no big deal, everything's fine. And then it was like, okay, well, all right, maybe we won't go to Patagonia, I guess we could go home. And like the, the luxury was Aaron had a plane, so um, so everything was very flexible. And um, and so it was like, well, we'll just, we'll do integration, because you have to do integration afterwards to talk about the experience and what happened and and really like take the information, because doing the, doing the medicine is not necessarily the, it's not the work, it's, it can be work because you can get kind of sick, and I did. But um, but it 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 um, it's sort of where it shows you something. It gives you some information, and then what you do with it is really the process. So the integration is important to talk about what happened, and um, and then so we were going to stay for the day, like during the day, and then and then fly home, and then in the second ceremony, middle of the night, and um, pop up. Because the shamans are like, uh, uh, Danica, uh, Aaron, uh, wake up. Uh, the pilots called, and we're like, what? And I like, what? And I sat up, and and it was like, um, they're um, they say we need to leave. The borders are closing by 10 a.m. And I was like, what? And so it was midnight, and we had to leave by like 6 a.m. to go to the airport mm-hmm. because the border was shutting, and so we had to find like a big enough vehicle to get us off. Anyway, so go back to the room, pack up and leave in the morning and do integration on the plane. Took the shamans home because they actually lived in Costa Rica and the only country open on the way home to California was Costa Rica. And if we would have left in the afternoon, we would have not, we would have had to stop in Lima because of the altitude. We wouldn't have had enough fuel to get to Costa Rica. So leaving early, it was cooler and we actually were able to get all the way to Costa Rica. So like it was by the skin of our teeth, we got out of there and um, yeah. That was how, that was, that's the ayahuasca story. And Did you like discover anything deep and meaningful yeah, about yourself? I did. I did. That you could apply? I did. And I didn't, I, and I, and I, I haven't done ayahuasca since then. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I, and I've been applying it for years, um, working on applying it, which was basically, um, I had this idea that um, I would find a partner that would complete me that would make me uh that would be like a perfect balance and like would be everything was like perfectly symbiotic it was like everything was magical and loved each other reciprocally and you know you everything was just perfect i just thought that somebody would complete that circle and i was shown that i was not going to get that and that i was going to have to get it with myself i was i i it was only going to come from yourself 
And I was really, 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 really sad about that. <laughs> I was really sad and I cried a lot. And, um, and, I, and, I, and then after I sort of was like, okay, in this experience in my mind, um, I accepted and it was like, you actually will get what you, th- you get what, you'll get what you want actually. It just won't happen until you find it with yourself first. Yeah. Like the feeling you're looking for, you can't find it with someone else until you find it with yourself first. So that is what's been happening over the last years. And then, and honestly, like I, I have people ask how my life's going. I'm like, wow, it's like really fun. (laughs) It's a really good life. And I don't look at relationships like I used to being super codependent and feeling like I had to adapt. Because remember the conversation about my dad and about like not being good enough. I would always overcompensate and always try and fix myself or change something. And now, and I'd always take it so personally. I'd always be like, if something, somebody didn't like me, it's like, what's wrong with me? And something is wrong with me, and um, and I, and it was something I needed to fix. And now I look at, it, I'm like, well, it doesn't mean something's wrong. It just means we're not right. Like somebody, people can be great people, but not match, mm-hmm. you know. And I also used to mistake sameness for compatibility, Ooh. and that was a problem too, because you know you don't want someone that's exactly the same as you. Yeah. You need someone that compliments you in certain ways. Like you can't have two alphas, right? You can't have people that you know. You can't have one person that always wants to go out and one person that never wants to go out. Like you, you have to be compatible, and sameness is not compatibility. So. Yeah, I learned a humongous lesson. It was the great, if it was honestly of all the things that I've done, and I've done other things. I've done mushrooms. Um, I've done, I mean, I've done a mushroom journey. I've done one like specific one that was a very high dose to, to is learn. Is this the heroic dose? Is yeah, I did a hero's dose. I did a five Don't grams. Don't you see death or something like this? No, I, uh, actually I did okay. have a little bit of a moment where it was at one point in time, there was these, this, energy of like collective energy of people that was like oh come this way and it was like upward they're like you you know and they said if you want to be an ascended master you have to leave your form behind just come on and i was like looking up going uh no i think i want to be human and i had to choose to be human and then i came back down and then from that point on in the experience i had to build every construct that it took to being human again and the first one that i had to agree to was the mind i had to agree to this construct that's not real and i and the experience at first i knew that this was not real and i was like oh shoot, how am I ever gonna come back because I know it's not real and you actually have to believe it's real to be in this experience. And the first thing I thought was my sister's gonna be so mad at me. Because she just does not understand this part of me. She's like a mom of four. She loves being home. She doesn't do any of this stuff. And I was like, my sister is going to be so mad at me. And I'm going to miss my family. And I was like, oh, shoot. Um, and so, uh, but I built those constructs back to being human. And, um, and, and then I also feel like I understood why we have amnesia as people. Why don't we remember where we came from? What's the point? Why don't we know? And, um, and that's because if we knew the full extent of the truth, then we wouldn't be able to play this game because we have to we have to forget to play the game right on have you ever done any i'm guessing you probably haven't done no, any of that stuff no it might not I, call you and it has to call you yeah i'm i've not done any of that stuff i've never even smoked pop before so like i drank for a while when i was in the seal teams you know there's a big drinking culture and i got it like that's what we're doing okay cool that's what we're doing yeah and then pretty much when i got out of the teams i didn't have any reason to drink anymore and i just kind of yeah kind of stopped drinking and that was that and now I'm very I'm definitely anti-alcohol and I've become more and more anti-alcohol because it really messes some people up and you mean just like on a 
like sleep and that, or do you mean like mentally, like they just, it's a, like a coping mechanism? Like the sleep stuff, I kind of feel like whatever. Hey, but when people, I've seen lives get destroyed, you know, yeah. through alcohol. And yeah. I look at it like probably, I don't, know, I don't know what the number is, but out of every hundred people that drink, there's probably 97 of them that are gonna be totally perfectly fine and good to go. Yep. And there's three of them that it's gonna wreck yeah. their lives and they don't know who they are. Yep. You know, you don't know who you are. Yep. You don't know if you're one of those people. And so you just get sent down a down, downward spiral. And so I just can't really s- support it. And then the freaking ayahuasca and stuff, you know, it's like a big thing in the veteran veterans oh, right now. Yeah. Oh, Huge well, thing. I mean, have you heard, um, I mean, uh, Bob Parsons, who owned GoDaddy, he is—he uh, was in the Marines, and he—he he contributes coming home mm-hmm. to doing LSD, mushrooms, ayahuasca, doing those experiences helped him finally come home, <laughs> and he's an advocate for others to yeah. do the same. To like it, he, and he, he's talked about it publicly. Like he—he, yeah. He, um, yeah, it was for him. It was very important. Yeah, and. So I have a bunch of friends that have done it. I have yeah. a bunch of friends that are working with organizations to grow it and make Ketamine it more accessible to people. Yeah. Uh, I just feel fine. And you don't need it. Yeah. It's totally fine. You don't need it. And like, and yeah. So I've, the way I described it to some of my friends that have, that were like, oh, you should try it. And I'm like, I feel like, and you can relate to this analogy that I've given, that I feel like I'm going down the highway at 80 miles an hour and you want me to pull my car over, take the engine apart, and then put it back together, and then like start driving again, and hope yeah. that everything works. Like, mm, it's not for everybody. I don't really think I need to do that. <laughs> I really don't want to take that risk because, yep. uh, you know, the screw gets left out or whatever. <laughs> you know, like the, yes. the cotter pin that your dad left yeah, off the, the break. freaking break. Like, I don't really need that to be happening with my brain. So it makes me a little bit, a little bit nervous. But yeah, so it's so true. I, I, but I have friends that have had been helped immensely by it. So. I'm not like anti yeah. the 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 medicine. The medicine. <laughs> I'm not anti It sounds a lot better than drug. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not anti the drug, but I or anti the medicine, but I just it's not for me. And but I'm, it is also used more medically in my mind. Like there's sometimes I use mushrooms recreationally, but mm-hmm. I mean when I'm talking about the ayahuasca experience, like the hero's dose, that was um, I was I was using it not to escape right. or not to I was trying to I wanted to have an, a deeper experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and like I said, I have some friends that ha- have absolutely been helped in a huge way by so it. So great. I am hearing now that there's some people that it's not helping and it's making it worse. Mm. So I, that's not a story that is getting propagated very much. Right. I'm not sure why it's getting not propagated. Probably because they're kind of, you know, when you're going in the downward spiral, you don't say, oh, let me come on a podcast and tell you about how fucked up I am now. Well, if I it's also this. a downward spiral, it might mean they keep doing it. Maybe yeah. they're using it as a coping. Maybe they're not yeah. actually doing the work and they're just doing the doing the drug yep. or doing the medicine Could and it's not it. really being used as medicine. It's being used as like they would call it in the spiritual world like a spiritual bypass or you're sort of bypassing the actual work that it's meant to provide you as opposed to um, so you're just doing it to mm-hmm. do it. You know, you're like, oh, if I do this, then I'll, but it's not in, the, like I've only had truly two real experiences and I mean, over the course of from 2020 until, you know, for th- over three years, three and a half years, mm-hmm. I've only had two experiences and they have shown me so much. And, um, and you can integrate for years. That ayahuasca experience in 2020, I've been integrating for years. When you stopped racing, was it like a, a weight off your back? Did you feel like <sighs> when you were racing, was it always like, how am I gonna do? How am I gonna do? How am I gonna yeah. do? Everyone's watching. 
did you feel like massive pressure for those 25 years or whatever it was that you yeah, raced? I did. Um, and then did that leave a mark? Uh, I think that was, you know, I mean, I retired and all this stuff. I mean, so that could have been my body also just like nothing's free, you know, as they, you know, many, many great philosophers have said and psychologists that nothing is free. I think Jordan Peterson's the one that comes to mind. You know, there's no, you just don't get away with anything in life. Mm-hmm. And so I can't get away with working that hard, being that stressed, putting myself in that, in so many compromising positions, emotionally, physically, mentally, and not have some sort of like comeback from that, right? Some sort of rebalance that my body and mind need. And, uh, and so I, I mean, yeah, it was, it was very stressful to the point where now I do this F1 stuff and I've been asked by, you know, multiple teams, like at the end of last year, Red Bull was like, oh, like there was a word like, hey, we'd like to put you in a car, not to race, but just Mm -hmm. to drive it. Like, do you want to drive a Formula One car? And, um, and I didn't honestly, I, I was like hard for me to say, I feel bad. I feel like I should just, oh yeah, no mm-hmm. problem. I don't, I, honestly, I don't have the confidence. Like I don't, it's too much stress. It's too much pressure. I trust that I would be able to do what I do, but I don't, I am not ready for what it takes. So when I say yes to anything, I'm saying yes to everything, which means like, I'm not just yes. And then I wing it or fu- like when I say yes, I'm, I'm saying yes to the whole kit and caboodle because I know I don't want to be bad at anything mm-hmm. so like back like backtrack to 2018 I was asked to do the ESPYs to host the ESPYs mm-hmm. and um, at first I, I didn't know if I should do it or not and it took a long time for me to decide because I knew that like I'm not funny I'm not a dancer I'm not a singer I'm like <laughs> what why me right I'm like I don't know I'm not really like a, I'm not like a like a present the ESPYs kind of person I'm not Drake I'm not Justin Timberlake I'm not Jimmy Kimmel like I, I don't know what I bring to the table and um, and so I it took a long time to decide because I knew that it was going to require me to like find that what is that thing about me that I can put on stage that will be somewhat entertaining and so I knew that it would require me to dig pretty deep and do a lot of work. And um, so I, it took a long time to say yes because I knew I was saying yes to all the work. Mm-hmm. And I do the, it's the same for everything I do. Everything I do. So this whole post-racing life, it's been like a it journey. It goes kicking to, in, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah, I like that. <laughs> the, this whole post-race life, that's where you're at now. And it seems like you're in a pretty awesome spot. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm just... I'm having so much fun in life. Um, I mean, I work a lot right now. I do need a break. Um, I'm ready for that. Uh, I feel like I've been going since basically May, like almost every day. I had one week where I did nothing when I got back. So I left in May for the Indy 500. I was at home for about three weeks in Indiana with my family. Um, And I did the Indy 500. I did um, Montreal F1 race. I did some work in between. And then I went to Europe for six weeks and vacationed, which look, it's a vacation. I get it, but I'm not home. Mm -hmm. And then, and I was traveling somewhere every three to five days. And then I finished up. That's not a vacation. (laughs) In my opinion, going to other, some other country, people talking other languages, being in a different room, (laughs) getting on a train, like all this stuff. It was a lot of work. There was a lot of work in there. I don't want any of that. So then I finished up with Budapest for Formula One and then I flew back to Indiana and I did some more. That's actually where I I ended up staying longer in Indiana because it was 120,000 degrees in Scottsdale. And I was like, and my my sister is obsessed with CrossFit. And I am, I I love it, but I don't do it anymore. And so she loves going to the game. She follows all the athletes. She knows how they're doing. She watches the competitions. I watch none. Um, But I don't mind. I love going to the games too. It's fun. I love watching competition. And so I'll go to any sporting event. 
and um, except cricket, that seems like it would be really boring. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry for the cricket fans out there. Um, but I, I, so I, so I was like, all right, I'll stay and we'll go to the CrossFit Games. Cricket's the number two most popular sport in the world after wow. soccer. I'm Did obviously you know that? missing something. There was like something that just happened in India, and it was like the most watched thing of all time. Crazy. Yep. Oh so yeah, cool. I'm wrong. Go ahead. Obviously, go ahead, Danica. Just, yeah, just talk smack about yeah. most of the world playing their cricket games. <laughs> exactly. This is why people don't all like me. But at least you can respect my authenticity. I don't like cricket, um, uh, but many do, and so I'm missing something. Um, but I uh, and so I decided I was like, all right, well, fine, I'll stay, and then we'll go to the CrossFit Games. And I was so lucky to meet you. And the way that that happened, uh, I was like thinking, oh my god, Jocko sponsoring this. I was like, I wonder if he's going to be here. I so want to meet Jocko. And and so then. A couple days had gone by. You came to the last day, yeah. And yeah. I was—I didn't think you were coming. And I was like, "That would make sense. I understand that." And maybe you're just sponsoring it, and that's totally fine. And then I don't know who—if it was your manager or like someone that was managing the the, the new product line, someone on the crew, or whatever. someone on the crew, and the they. Team. And so that somebody said you were there and I was like, oh, great. And then he started walking. You guys started walking towards the direction mm -hmm. that I was in. And he looked over at me and waved and was like, Danica. And I was like, perfect. And I might have said hi to him, but I can't remember for sure or not. But I was like, hi. And I went over right to you and I just started talking. And I realized that I'm this is the direct me as I just like yeah. go right in. Well, they said something to me like they're like, hey, uh, Danica Patrick's here. Would you? I'm like, where's she at? Let's go. <laughs> Let's go say what's up. Oh my God, great. Well, I'm so flattered yeah. that we had equal interest uh, <laughs> or at least interest. Um, and so uh, sometimes I don't know if anybody even knows some of doesn't even know who I am. That's and that's totally fine too. Um, but we had a great little 15, 20 minute conversation that yeah. um, we decided we'd end up finishing this way. I brought you. I brought you drinks. You I did. You drinks, which is so good. I mean, I've finished all the cookies. <laughs> By the way, I, the cookies are like the best snack. Like, they're a very good snack. I don't know why they're so satiating, but I, I that and a cup of coffee is, yeah. and I'm gone. They're gone. I've ate them all. Um, the drinks are so good. I, there's a pink lemon. I like the pink mist, but I also like the sweeter one, the yeah. savage one. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. that's a little of the sweeter one yeah. that's and i and, you know but the pink lemonade's great um we have coffee flavored milk coming oh stop it no i'm serious oh that's going down yeah it's going down that's going down i don't really like coffee but of course i had to try it and it tastes kind of like tiramisu like <laughs> that coffee flavor that's an it's so good it's wow ridiculous. um so your the products are seriously like well done appreciate it yeah appreciate and the it. drinks really do work the goes really go yes they do <laughs> They're for real. What is it that makes you go so much with the go? It's really the nootropic. So there's only 95 mm. milligrams of caffeine in there, but it's got alpha GPC. It's got thermobromine. So it's got other things in it that take that make it feel like it's more than caffeine. Oh, 100%. But it doesn't get you all jittery. So, yeah, we, we put a lot into it. Go works. Yeah, go works. <laughs> go works. So, so basically it? today I've drank a milk for breakfast <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't drank enough water. I've definitely been drinking that's, all that's these That's my liquids, life right there. <laughs> milk for breakfast, maybe a go for podcast and mm -hmm. then it's on. Mm -hmm. What does that get us up to speed? We good? Does that get us up to speed? We covered your podcast. We covered yeah. your wine. <laughs> Oh, I heard in your podcast you make candles. I do. I have candles. You yeah. make candles. Yeah, I, so I took a trip. Actually, I'm headed to Egypt in a few more days again. Um, I went to Egypt at the beginning of 2021, and I'm obsessed with, um, like, obviously loving the deep ancient history as mm -hmm. much as I love excavating, like, the nature of reality, which is where sort of those plant medicines come in. 
medicines. And um, <laughs> and so I, I love it. And I love Egypt. And I went there in 2021. And at the end of the trip, we went and visited this aromacologist. And he was telling us about the smells and what they do and the sort of the bio reaction, the biochemistry reaction to, you know, everything from uh, myrrh to frankincense and all these different oils. And so, um, so I bought $500 worth of oils and brought them home. Jack. And, uh, and so I ended up making these candles. Uh, I made four different candles out of it. And uh, they're curated for different places in the house based on sort of the, 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 the essential oils and the vibe that each one has. And so they are really good. And they're in a wine glass. So when you're done with it, you just wash it and you have a wine glass. Um, so it's called Voyant, which then is stand. Yeah, exactly. Voyant means the seer. So it's kind of about sort of seeing more of the truth. Right. So what? anything else? Um, anything else I'm missing? No, I mean, race broadcasting and podcasting and wine and um, candles. And <laughs> I feel like I always forget one, but I, if, yeah. but let's some just sponsor. call that good. Let's call some that sponsor. Got got some, I'm, my new, my new sponsors are all in the health and wellness industry. They're oh, like, awesome. they're like stem cells and PRP and like all kinds of super cool stuff. So I'm into all that as well. But Very cool. yeah, I mean, that's, that's an incredible, incredible deep dive on my life. Well, I'm was there any stories it. that surprised you? Mm. Well, I did a lot of research, so I didn't think I was going to get surprised. I mean, obviously, it's the first time you talked about that one deal where you yeah. had to work through some sponsorship and some payment and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So that's the kind of one I hadn't heard before. But, you know, in reading your books and then doing research and watching interviews with you and stuff like that, I don't think I got surprised. Um, no, I, I didn't get surprised. But I definitely, it's it's interesting. I guess the, the parts that you didn't really talk about in some of the other things was just like, what I wanted to know was, first of all, like how you're dealing with fear. And I'm always interested in someone that's really talented at something and what it seems like for them to be talented in that thing. And do you realize how talented you are? And when do you realize that? And at a certain point being like, uh, well, I wasn't as talented as this other person who was more talented than me, and that's why they were able to win, and I was only able to get fourth place or seventh place. I was only able to win. Like, that's a real thing that people contend with in life, and everyone has to deal with that unless you're like Michael Jordan. Yeah. Or, I mean, how many people just get to be like, oh, I'm literally the best person in the world? Not many people Even get to do like that. Even like a story, uh, Lewis Hamilton's won seven championships. He's was so close to winning his eighth a couple of years ago, and it was a very controversial ending to the Formula One season with Max Verstappen, and he won. Um, <clears throat> but even, you know, we were just, uh, I'm, when this is coming out, I don't know if I can conclude this, but I'm going to be in the new Drive to Survive series uh, oh, season, nice. and so uh, um, and so we were doing a huge sit down for like six hours the other day, and one of the things that came through was like Lewis at one point, like in the year, has like doubted his talent, so. You can be the best in the world and still doubt yourself. Mm -hmm. I doubted myself all the time. The amount of times I would go back to the bus and cry about how I qualified or what happened, like all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just human. I think it's just, you know, I think it's part of being good at things too is like you have to, to get better, you have to think you need to, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. No. And I always need, I'm like, I'm not the best at anything I do. Mm -hmm. That's the same with me. And I think that's the same with people that are, constantly trying to get better they're like because let's face it if you're like oh i'm the best driver well you wouldn't care you wouldn't go on the bus and cry you just sit there and be like 100 percent. Ah, that was only because the car that was only because the track or that 100%. was 100 instead of being like i wish i would have done this better yeah how yeah. can i fix it yeah I don't, i'm always growing always learning and if there's one thing that i is like the point of life to me it's to grow and evolve yes indeed um people can find you 
You're at DanicaPatrick.com. You can pretty much link to everything from there. You got a YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Danica Patrick, which yeah. is very nice, very easy. <laughs> Echo Charles, you got any questions? Yes, I do. Okay. Oh, good. Here I'm we like, go. I'm very, uh, I'm hopeful that I'm going to be uh, oval, respectful on these. But hey, one never know. You can't yeah. make a mistake right now. Okay, there we go. Your intention is because you care and you're curious. And yes, that's ma'am. all that matters. You ever watch Days of Thunder? I totally have seen Days of Thunder. Is that your jam? Excellent oh, movie. Oh, okay, that, oh, that was the yeah. question because because that. I love the way that they describe drafting. Yes. Very, okay, that was very be one accurate. Of my questions. Oh, so it's not accurate. That's not. No, a thing. it's kind of just laughing because he was like using salt sugar packets on Nicole Kidman's leg. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you gotta make it romantic for sure. But he was it's talking about losing his ride. Yeah. Remember? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. what you were talking about, yeah. like the ride or whatever. Yep. That was, yep. Yeah, yep. that was always hard, hard to understand. Yeah, losing your ride just means you out of your out of the seat, out of the team. Need yeah. to find a new ride. You need to find a new team and a new car to drive. Yeah, so it's like it's almost like two working, well, more than two, but those two main working parts. You got the driver, you got the car, and they can kind of interchange, kind of a thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The driver, the driver can plug into a new team mm-hmm. that has a car. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Are you a defensive driver on the on the regular streets? I'm an offensive driver. That makes sense to me completely. <laughs> I actually told if someone wants to go faster than me, I want them to because I'm already driving fast. <laughs> okay. Like into right. me, they're a rabbit. Go catch the cops for me. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm doing 85 on the highway or 90, and someone passes me, I'm like, thank you. Yeah. If you're at a stoplight. <clears throat> And someone like pulls up by you and like revs their engine. Is it on? Or oh, is, I look at them like, like too, you too. have. I look it over and I'm like, you have absolutely no idea who you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. yeah oh, okay. and yeah. I'll two foot it at that point in time. If it's really on, <laughs> you got to take your right foot off the brake and put your left foot on the brake, right foot on the gas, and you 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 mm-hmm. you trim some some transition yeah. time down. Yeah, yeah. yeah you got to make sure that thing's not on auto restart. You don't want to have yeah. to run and start it back up for you. No, no, sport mode, baby. Okay. All right. Uh, last insight to be gained. Uh, you ever play the game Mario Kart? Of when I was a kid, I don't play video games. But when I was a kid, I played um, like Duck Hunt, tra- uh, Track and Field, um, Super Mario Brothers, Super and then Bros. Mario Kart. Yeah, Mario Kart. Th- I figured that'd be the jam. Wait, so Mario Kart is a video game about driving a go kart? Yes, that's exactly what it is. So, so Mario Super Mario it's ex- Brothers. It's exactly, like you can pick up mushrooms that give you special powers. Oh and yeah, they make you faster. <laughs> oh yeah, see mushrooms. Yeah, there you yep. go. There you go. Oh yeah, layers. And wait, there. so it's good. It's good. Oh yeah, Mario, uh, it's old. To me, Mario Kart, especially the old one, the the OG uh, GameCube or whatever, not the you know they they update them and stuff. Did the you GameCube get that one? old school Nintendo that came out a few years back where they're like, oh, we're gonna yes. kick it old school? Oh, you yes. got that? Spot. Yeah, oh yeah, big time. It's a little, it's a little USB. It's like a chip has all the games <laughs> in it. Oh yeah, for sure, Doctor Mario all day. But Mario Kart is GameCube though. That's later, and that f- that feels like something you'd be into. Yeah, I did play it when I was young. Yeah, you but go. I didn't keep going. I, I'm not a big fan of video games. You didn't go pro. You like the real thing. I didn't go better. pro in that. No, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That it's. Makes uh, sense. I think I feel like video games are. I feel like it's a guys love video game. Like most, a lot of guys like video games. Same same thing with car racing. Usually, guys like I, a lot of that yeah. too. That's true. Know. That no, hey, it's one of those I don't fair. know. Look hey, at Echo respect, Charles. Respect, respect, <laughs> respect. But hey, do what you dig, sister. You're doing great. <laughs> Great Thank to meet you, you in real life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Danica, Thank you. Any, any, uh, any closing thoughts? Man, just thoughts become things. You know, your mind is super powerful. Um, f- know who you are. Find out who you are. Don't be afraid of alone time. That's, I think, where you really, really figure it out. And, um, and try and trust that the, that try and, try to accountability. I think, you know, 
accountability. It's like, it's the, honestly, if there's one thing that I'm the most proud of myself for, it's learning accountability. It's actually saying like, oh, I'm sorry, or what is this situation saying about me? And I'm sure I don't get it right at all the time, but, but, but being more and more accountable all the time in my life for the reality that I live in is super powerful. Super powerful. Absolutely. Um, well, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, you've lived a freaking wild life doing wild stuff. It's it's pretty amazing. And you're sharing your stories. You're sharing your lessons. And I know you've inspired a ton of people. And you're continuing to inspire them today. So thanks for what you've been doing. Keep doing it. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, Danica Patrick has left the building. And then I recorded a podcast with Danica Patrick. Nice. And now we're doing the support section. Yeah. So that's what we're doing. Pretty uh, cool though. She interviewed me or yeah. I interviewed her. Is that an interview? Uh, or was it a discussion? An interview, isn't an interview like I'm asking you questions? Yeah. This is more like a, ta- a talk or an exploration or a, or a discussion, right? I like the exploration. I yeah. would have a hard time classifying that as an interview. Like if someone said, oh, did you interview Danica Patrick? I'd say, well, no, but we talked about like her life yeah. and asked questions. It's a great area, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right? Technically, was there questions asked? Yes, mm-hmm. you know, she answered them, you know. What's the fastest you've ever gone in a car? Best I ever gone in a Or a motorcycle. Um, Obviously not nearly as fast. Like two hundred miles per hour to me is fo- is psychotic. Like that's yeah. going back in. And time. that's that's the norm. Yeah. <clears throat> so one fifteen. Mm-hmm. I remember that going down. Um, I can't remember going faster than that. I got a one forty. I got a buck forty. But in a car or motorcycle? Yeah, car. Uh, JP. Yeah. Danelle. Hell yeah. We were me and Sarge were in Vegas for the UFC. And so we were like up there cornering somebody, coaching somebody, something like this. And JP was like, I, we, so we had tickets, you know, we had backstage, we had the whole nine yards. So I texted JP, you know, something like, hey, bro, just FYI, I'm in Vegas going to UFC, got tickets, got whatever. And he's like, on my way, right? <laughs> and at this time, he had one of those kind of legit Chrysler 300s. Yep. You remember when those cars were pretty hyped? Oh yeah, when they first kind of came out. Yeah, but then that they but the then jam. they put like a big Hemi engine mm-hmm. in them and souped it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So he had one of those legit Hemi Chrysler 300s. Mm-hmm. And so I, I texted him like, "Hey, bro, you know, like, what's your ETA?" <laughs> <laughs> he sent me like a picture back. He's doing like a buck forty-seven on the highway, just freaking hauling the mail. <laughs> <laughs> JP yeah. used to race motorcycles. Like it's a yeah. mirror. Like JP is why insurance is high yeah, for yeah. young men. That makes sense. Right? Yeah. Teenage kid. Can you imagine trying to insure JP Denell for a vehicle when he's seventeen or sixteen? Yeah. There's reasonable. no. There's no. You need to put the. High, it needs to be a. It needs to be a thousand dollars a day. <laughs> yeah, it's very unrealistic. Yes, because he is going to get after it. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen the Isle of Man? No, no race. Isle it's of a Man. motorcycle no. race. Oh, yeah, and it's around this island, and mm-hmm. these it's a motorcycles, and they're going whatever 160 miles an hour, but there's just it's just a road, and there'll be like a stone wall. 
next to it and these guys get a little bit of air and they're just hauling ass there's buildings because it's in the island isle of man so there's buildings like on the road you know how in england and in ireland and in those parts of the world you there's a road and there's like a pub that when you take one footstep outside the pub you're on the street it's like that kind of thing and these are old stone buildings and stuff sure and people die every year like every year but let's say JP got a terminal disease. <laughs> I would sponsor JP for I Love Man TT. I would sponsor him. I'd buy him a sick motorcycle, Damn. a Damn. sick set of leathers, sure. and just like echelon front Jocko fuel. <laughs> just go. <laughs> just freaking get some. Turn them loose. Because okay. can you imagine, look, JP taking risks as a normal person, yeah. but then imagine he's dying. <laughs> He's gonna win that race, or he's gonna die. <laughs> First of all, his normal state of mind would be he's either gonna die or win the yeah. race. <laughs> That's normal. But if he was dying, the reason yeah. I would only sponsor him if he had a terminal disease is because if he didn't have a terminal disease, now I just gave him one. Uh. <laughs> I gave him the disease of victory, because he'll do anything. Uh, yeah. But yeah, talking to Danica, she got conditioned, right, mm. to just speed. Yeah, You know what I mean? Like, it's not that big of a deal to her, mm-hmm. but yeah, 200 miles an hour, 220 miles an hour. Yeah. Other cars are six inches away, eight inches away. That's that's hauling ass. Yeah. That's hauling ass. And and again, that the pressure that I talked to her about, that's a lot of pressure to be under all the time. The yeah. whole world was watching her, by the way. Yeah. You know, like everyone, oh, how'd she do? How'd she oh, do? Oh, yeah, how'd with she the do? hype. Yeah, the hype. Yeah. She yeah. was the... Yeah, what's that? What's the term they use in MMA when someone's like super hyped? The hype train. Like hype she train. was just hype trained for years. Yeah. So, yeah. a lot making of pressure, a making a big splash, and in also interesting to hear her kind of, uh, you know, getting healthy, getting healthy, and how she kind of she didn't fall. Here's the interesting thing: she she didn't fall off the path mm-hmm. from a discipline perspective. She just was doing the wrong things. Yeah, you know, lots of. Long distance, slow cardio, eating the wrong stuff. She straight up went vegan for a while. Like that's just kind of in many, 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 many cases not going to be real good for you. Yeah. So if so, if you're working out hard, oh yeah, bro, you can't. It's not sustainable. No, it's, it's not, not realistic. But definitely awesome to hear from her and cool to sit down and talk with her. So there you go, Danica mm-hmm. Patrick. Hey, speaking of getting on the path, like we're doing def reset, mm-hmm. so. This is going to start January 1st, but it actually starts immediately because if you're not in the game right now, you're not going to be ready for it when it comes. So mm-hmm. that's what we're doing. We're going to be working out with Jason Kalipa. We're going to be doing leadership with Echelon Front. We're going to be doing discipline directives from me, fueled by Jocko Fuel. Check out thedefreset.com. Get registered. This is where you have the opportunity to change your trajectory of your next year. That's what you can do. Change the trajectory of your next year. You could be flat, you could be going down a little bit, you could be going up three degrees, or you could be going up 19 degrees, 24 degrees going up. Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing. Get better life, get better health, get better fitness, get on the path, thedefreset.com. We're all gonna do it, and we're gonna get some. Oh, yeah. Hey, by the way, when you're doing that, you're gonna need fuel. Any recommendations? Jocko fuel. <laughs> fuel all day. So, uh, and, you know, I haven't shaken out the numbers or whatever, but, you know, the um, 
so how much do you have to eat protein wise? Mm-hmm. If you just start with protein, how much yeah. do, you, do you like Jocko, yeah. me, this guy, this guy? Like individually, we all got to eat a certain amount of protein mm-hmm. to get the amount of um, you know for to gain gain your muscle. If yep. that's you know, the program, or maintain your muscle. Yeah, yeah. And I think, and you might be different, just because actually I'm different. I know I'm different because mm-hmm. I got freaking primal freaking beef coming. I got all this stuff, so my access to steak is pretty abundant. <laughs> But the normal person, it's not like that. It can actually be kind of hard to get that amount of protein. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. day after day after day, it's it's kind of hard. So I figure if you do the numbers, like the, the you know, we're on the DEF reset, we're lifting, we're doing all this stuff. You do the numbers as far as Jocko Fuel goes, the MOLK, I would say that would be the number one thing mm-hmm. you want. Yeah, that's probably going to be the number one thing you want. Put that at the top of the list. Like the difference between having it and not having it to me is going to be the biggest, I think, with milk. By the way, it's, you know, it's winter. And look, I know that in Southern California, winter doesn't hold a lot of weight if you're from Minnesota or you're from Maine. Mm -hmm. But let's face it, it's a little cooler out right now. And I'm back on that warm or let's call it hot chocolate milk. Yeah. In the morning. Yeah. Wait, the RTD one or the mix? No, the mix. Oh, yeah. The mix. I dig it. So. And here's a couple key components. Number one, heat the heat the milk, then mix it with the milk. Okay. That's component number one. Component number two, heavy whipping cream with monk fruit in it. Mix that up. You can make whipped cream kind of like a keto whipped cream. And you put that in this. You'll be, you will, you might as well go to whatever. Uh, do you like chocolate milk? Do you yes, like hot chocolate? I very much like okay. hot chocolate. Where's the best hot chocolate that you would get from a store? Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. So, but you know when you go to a certain coffee shops yeah. and you order a hot chocolate, yeah. it's really good. Sure, this be like that. It'd be that level. Yeah, that oh, level. Dang, okay. I'm not kidding. Restaurant level. that level. Okay. Restaurant right. level. It's that good. Okay. So it's chocolate milk. Heat the milk up, then add the chocolate. Mix it. Then put the heavy whipping cream with monk fruit that you made into whipped cream. Put it in there. You're gonna be you. You will be 100. <coughs> percent one hundred percent. One hundred percent gratified and satisfied. All right. And you'll still be on the path, by the way. That's yeah. the crazy thing. You can be on the path. Yeah. While you're doing this. Yeah. It's absolutely. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Christmas time. So uh Lonnie, my brother's girlfriend. Yep. She makes these homemade cookies. Mm-hmm. And they have like I don't know what they got in there. Mm-hmm. But it's I know it's probably not that healthy. Mm-hmm. Insane. <laughs> I know I think there's like Oreo chunks in there, there's marshmallows in there, and then it's like homemade chocolate chip cookies kind there of a thing. Know. She made a lot of them too. So, yeah, when they're cruising there and they're in there, it's like, oh, you know, this is kind of a rare occasion. They're here or whatever. Anyway, to say no to that kind of stuff when it's in your house or whatever tends to be harder around the holidays, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So if you got a substitute, then I think that's going to pay dividends. Gonna that's what I think. Dividends, I'm telling you. So there you go. Hey, by the way, oh, Def Reset, you're going to need hydrate. You're definitely going to want some go in the vicinity, right? Yeah. Super cruel. Yeah, joint warfare because you're you're working hard. So there you go. Go to go to jockofuel.com. Get this stuff. Also, you can go to Vitamin Shop. You can go to Wawa. You can go to GNC Military Commissaries, Afies, Hannaford, Dash Stores in Maryland, Wake Fern, Shoprite, H E B, Meyer, out there in the Midwest, H E B down there in Taos, Harris Teeter, Lifetime Fitness, Shields, Small Gyms. Hey, if you go to a gym, which I hope you're going to a gym, you're doing jujitsu, you're doing CrossFit, you're doing weightlifting, you're doing yoga. You could be doing yoga. If those gyms aren't selling Jocko Fuel and you want them to, tell the owner to email jfsales at jockofuel.com and we'll get you set up. That way, on the way in, you have a go. 
On the way out, you grab a hydrate, and then when you're in the car for the drive home, mulk, rebuild. Oh, Got a plan for you. Jockofield.com, go get some. Yep, it's true. Also, uh, we're doing jujitsu. Mm-hmm. If you don't have an origin de- gi for jujitsu, get an origin gi. Do yourself that favor. Best gis in the world. Also made in America. One might think, you know, we're focused on jujitsu. We don't necessarily care about where the gi's made. We do care about mm-hmm. where the gi's made. Because after the after you get off the mat, there's still a world out there. Mm-hmm. You know, you want the world to be a good, fair, balanced place. What I'm mm-hmm. saying, origin. That's where they represent art. See what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. You know, and same. you can get rash cards. You can get T-shirts. You can get truckers hats. Uh, you can get everything. You get jeans, blue jeans. Yep. So go to originusa.com and and support America. Support freedom. Never mind America. Support freedom. You might be over in Europe right now. You can't buy in Europe. Maybe there's maybe they're not making jeans anywhere in England. Maybe they're not making jeans anywhere in Germany. It's okay. You don't need to buy them from China. Slave labor. You can buy them from Origin USA. That's what we're doing. OriginUSA.com. Go get some. It's true. Also, Jocko has a store. If you want to represent discipline equals freedom while you're on this path, the idea of good, you want to represent, this is where you get it. JockoStore.com. Some merch on there, some good stuff. Check it mm-hmm. out if you like something, get something. Also, speaking of liking something, subscription scenario, new design on a shirt every single month. It's called the shirt locker. You did you just post the deadlift video on YouTube? Yeah. Why? What made you decide to do that? Um. Oh, cause I there's a campaign, like an email campaign. I was emailing oh, okay. everybody because over the years, shirt locker has been in service whatever mm. in full swing for like two years already Dang. so uh, you know people email oh i like this one i like the if you're a member you can buy the past shirts mm-hmm. so people would be like hey when's this one coming back you know like a, just a, not a random one but you know one from long time ago someone would be like oh when is small coming back in stock or whatever and th- they'll all, a lot of time anyway they'll include oh i really like this one i really like this one and people when i see them i really like this one so it's like sorted itself out to have like a list of like the ones that everyone seemed mm-hmm. to like the most. I call it short locker favorites. That's what I called it. Mm-hmm. So I emailed people, everyone on the email list that, Hey, these are the short locker favorites. So look, if they're in Christmas time, something like that, they want to buy one for their friend, for their wife, husband, brother, whatever. Is it illegal or immoral if I'm part of the shirt locker, mm-hmm. but my wife isn't and I order a shirt and I give it to her? Yeah, that's kind of the whole gig. So that no, it's not illegal. That's why I encourage that. Oh, okay. See what I'm saying? And you can buy ones from the past is what I'm saying. So if you're a member, you can go and they can buy whatever. So that's why I posted that video because on the email it had that video as well. Sure. So it included some of the shirt locker favorites in the whole comprehensive what, was message. Was it a little bit of a humble brag to like put your big effects into it? <laughs> Uh, I was very happy with the way the video turned out. You know, you performed very well in mm-hmm. that video. Deadlifting. You know? My shirt changed. Go watch the video. Uh, there you go. So, jockostore.com, shirt locker. We got it going on. Also, coloradocraftbeef.com or primalbeef.com. Look, Echo said, hey, he's what? Has steak in abundance. Yep. We can abundance. all have steak in abundance. Yep. So, go to primalbeef.com, go to coloradocraftbeef.com and get yourself some steak some burgers, some beef hot dogs. Get it, that's what we're doing. We'll ship to your door in a good frozen package and you'll be able to eat and it'll be a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, get jockounderground.com. It's a little separate podcast that we do. 
can check that one out. It's also, we did that so we can have control over the platform just to make sure we don't get kicked off and don't have anywhere to go. We'll have somewhere to go, always, the underground. YouTube, check those out, Psychological Warfare, flipsidecanvas.com, Dakota Meyer, bunch of books, obviously you got Danica Patrick's books, Crossing the Line and Pretty Intense. You can get those. Also, I've written a bunch of books. If you wanna get those books, go get them. That's all there is to it. I recommend you check out the kids' books because you're gonna have a, speaking of trajectory, like look, you can change the trajectory of your life right now and it'll be cool, it's gonna have an impact, but you change the trajectory of a kid's life and it changes so dramatically everything. So get those warrior kid books, one, two, three, four, five. Also, Echelon Front, we have a leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. So go to echelonfront.com if you need help in your organization with anything. Anything. Anything that's going on in your organization that's not going the way you want it to go, it's a leadership problem. We solve problems through leadership. Echelonfront.com. Also, we have an online training academy that teaches you to take ownership of your life. So check that out, extremeownership.com. Also, if you wanna help service members active and retired, you wanna help their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization if you wanna donate or you wanna get involved. Go to americasmightywarriors.org. Also, don't forget about Micah Fink. He's up in the mountains. Actually, right now, factually, mm-hmm. he is gone dark. He texted me, he's like, hey, you're not gonna hear from me for a month. Sure. I'll be off all electronic devices. Mm-hmm. He's probably right now gnawing on the femur of a bear. Sure, of course. Out in the wilderness. So check that out as well. Also, if you wanna connect with Danica, once again, on the interwebs, she's got danicapatrick.com. And on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram, she's at Danica Patrick. She was, she was like in the time mm. where she got it all, got right? All, yeah. She got her... What's it called? Her URL. Yeah. She, and she got all of her handles. Yeah, that's legit. That's hard to do this day and age. Yeah. Especially with the, uh, well, it depends on your name, I guess, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. I got mine. Yeah. All mine. Danica is a unique enough name, right? I think it's kind of at the border, though. <laughs> border, like to yeah. get everything. And yeah. That's just my opinion. But I yeah. think that's timing, right? Because yeah. she was around yeah. 2004, 2005. Yeah, you know, yeah. She just got each. So I, I wonder if she did that or if someone was savvy. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Be interesting. I Hey, I have Jocko.com and I have at Jocko Willink, at Jocko Willink. It's the same on everything. Yeah. The only thing that's a little bit confusing is Jocko Podcast, at Jocko Podcast on YouTube. Yeah, I don't know who has mm-hmm. that one. You do. We do. That's no. ours. Is ours is a, is Jocko podcast? It is. Yeah, the YouTube channel. Okay, there you go. <laughs> I thought it was Jocko podcast official. Oh, okay. But it could be. Yeah, no, you're probably right. Yeah. So there you go. If that's how you connect with Danica, also Echo is at Echo Charles. I'm at Jocko Wong. Just watch out for the algorithm. Because you heard me. Like I, what I, I my algorithm's just racked filled now. Yeah, man. With it's Danica real. Patrick that's crashes. It's real. real. Danica Patrick victory. Danica Patrick yelling. Yep. Danica Patrick crashing. Like it's that's all that's getting fed now. Yeah. Danica Patrick interview. So the algorithm, it's tracking you. Mm-hmm. So just be careful. Don't get sucked into the algorithm. And thanks once again to Danica for joining us today, sharing her life lessons. And thanks to all the military personnel 
out there around the globe putting yourselves in harm's way to protect our way of life. We thank you and also thanks to our police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol, secret service, and all first responders. Thank you for serving and protecting us here at home. We are grateful. And to everyone else out there, it's a scrap. It's a scrap. You can't expect anything to be given to you. You have to work for it. And even here's the thing, even when you work for it, there's no guarantees. Even then, there are risks. But the biggest risk, the biggest risk there is, is not taking any risk at all. So, put your helmet on and go get after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko, out.